bad world out there. So take solace in the word on Solace Radio. Before we begin our Torah study, we like to pray together. Would you join me? Baruch Atadonai. Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kidshanu b'mitzvotav, etzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. Well, I am excited because many of you are facing new opportunities. For a whole year we've been focusing on how to move forward. How do you say forward in Hebrew? Kadima. Let's all say it together. Kadima. Kadima. Forward. And we're focusing on that for one reason and one reason alone, so that we move forward. Exactly. And we have seen great new opportunities in a lot of different directions. Some of you have new opportunities that involve your work, your career, your jobs. Some involve education and schooling and teaching. Others involve new opportunities in relationships. Some involve money or sports or hobbies or even travel. And honestly, some involve things that we want to do and some involve opportunities that require things that we don't want to do. But in fact, many of you are facing opportunities. And I think it's important that, that you have clarity and insight. And you have strength and power in order to move forward in the opportunities that that you choose. And so let's say Kadima opportunity, forward opportunity, Kadima opportunity. This week's Torah portion describes what I want to call holy opportunities. And I want to start this morning by looking at a very specific kind of holy opportunity. It's an opportunity that God himself sets up. And that we can't plan for, we can't anticipate, we can only recognize and respond to it. And this week's tour portion describes three specific people who have such opportunities. We want to look at their examples. So you can turn in Genesis, we're actually going to start in Genesis 37 for some background, because we're going to look at the opportunities, the holy opportunities that came to Judah, to Joseph, and to Jacob. Now, to prepare you for this, I want to tell you that there are three things from the human side that have to come together for such opportunities. Number one, we have to recognize that God's hand is moving. Number two, we need to respond to the grace of the Lord that he's pouring out upon us. And number three, we have to act decisively and quickly. So we're going to look at three examples of holy opportunities, and they're all related and connected, but each opportunity was really given to one person. So Judah, Joseph, and Jacob. Let's let's start with Judah. And I want you to remember the background. Judah, Judah was the one who proposed that the brothers, the sons of Israel, sell Joseph into slavery instead of killing him. Now, it is important that you be familiar with these stories. That's one of the reasons why we encourage you to read the scriptural portions, the Torah portions, Haftorah and the Brita Chadashah, before you come so that you are familiar. In order to understand what's going on, it's important to have the background. If you don't, you'll find yourself sometimes missing some details. And I... 
I want to compare it to something. How many of you went to high school? Good. How many of you, I don't guess they made good grades in high school. I'm not going to ask that question. How many of you took a class where you had to read books in high school? Okay, or in college, or post-grad. Okay, so you're familiar with that. And how many of you had a teacher who said, I want you to read this book so that we can discuss it? How many of you remember that? Okay, and how many of you remember there was one kid, at least one, in the class who never read the books? (laughs) And there was always one who didn't read but wanted to talk anyway. (laughs) Okay, I don't want you to be one of those kids. I want you to rise above that and understand that when we're studying together, you should come prepared. Know the scriptures. Be familiar with them. It will help you. So we're going to start with the background of Judah in Genesis 37, starting in verse 26. And and to set this up, Judah and his brothers have, have really become fed up with Joseph. Joseph is their father's favorite son. And Joseph has had dreams in which he told his brothers that he understands that they are going to bow down to him and he's going to be the greatest one. And they said, not on your life. And so their initial conclusion is, let's just kill him. But Judah, being the good brother that he is, has a different idea. Let's, Let's read about it. Genesis 37. Judah says to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his his blood? Now, that's a little bit hard to understand. What profit? That can mean two things. How much money could we make? The answer is nothing. We won't get anything if we just kill him. Or the other way of understanding is, what use is it? Why should we do this? How could that be useful? And so Judah comes up with another idea. Verse 27. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And not lay our hands on him. And listen to his rationale. Because he's our brother. Our own flesh. Now, can you imagine having a brother like this? We, we can't kill him. He's our brother. We can only sell him. Judah, what a man. So Judah has this idea. And it tells us that his brothers listened to him. So he was influential. And then some Midianite traders passed by and they pulled Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. So this is Judah. This is the background to Judah. And that happened years before. Now we're in a different scene altogether. I want you to turn to Genesis 44. Judah is is facing a situation where his brother Benjamin will likely become a slave in Egypt. And it's all part of a setup. Joseph, the brother who they sold into slavery, is now the prime minister in Egypt. Joseph recognizes his brothers. His brothers don't know him. They've come to buy food during the time of famine. And during that whole time, Joseph's trying to figure out what to do. And he ends up. Um, setting up Benjamin so that it looks like Benjamin's a thief. Benjamin is now um, in trouble. And Judah is standing before the prime minister of Egypt, not knowing who the prime minister really is. So we're now at Genesis 44, verse 32. 
And Judah starts speaking to the prime minister and he says, for your servant, in other words, for I, Judah, became surety for the lad to my father. And I said, if I don't bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let me, your servant, remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Now, we see that Judah is different than he used to be. Reuben, maybe not. Reuben had come up with this idea that if if they couldn't bring Benjamin back safely to Jacob, Reuben said, well, Dad, you can kill two of my boys. Now, what a great dad, you know, to offer the lives of two sons. Judah is thinking differently than Reuben. Judah says, let it be me. Honk to the truth. Let it be me who becomes a slave instead of Benjamin. And he offers himself as a substitute, a willing substitute. Now we see that the Judah is not thinking the way he used to think. And this is an interesting situation because Judah was the one who came up with the idea of selling Joseph into slavery. Now he's proposing he become a slave. And a slave to whom? He doesn't realize it, a slave to Joseph. But he's willing to do this. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs recently retired as the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, and he he wrote this. Judah is the first person in the Torah to achieve perfect repentance, teshuva gemurah, defined by the sages as one who finds himself in a situation to repeat an earlier sin, but who does not do so because he is now a changed person. Now faced with the prospect of leaving Benjamin as a slave, Judah says, let me stay as a slave and let my brother go free. So Rabbi Sachs points out, Judah is really different. He could have washed his hands of the whole situation and let Benjamin stay as a slave, but he's now a different man himself. And Judah proposes to be a substitute. And here is Judah's holy opportunity. He recognizes that this is the opportunity he has for real repentance and to to make things right on the second occasion. And he chooses to pay the price of repentance. Now, what Judah could not have imagined is what this would trigger in the prime minister of Egypt who's listening to Judah. And remember the scene, Judah standing there, he's speaking to the prime minister. In He's speaking in what language? In Hebrew. And he has an Egyptian interpreter who is interpreting into Egyptian from Hebrew for the sake of the prime minister. The prime minister is listening to the Egyptian and they're communicating via an interpreter. And what Judah has now done triggers emotions in uh, the prime minister that are absolutely impossible to understand from Judah's point of view. The prime minister loses his composure. He, he gets all stirred up, very emotional, and he, he quickly dismisses everybody who's, who's in his court who speaks Egyptian, all the Egyptian servants. He makes them all leave. He, he, he tells them, go, go, go away. 
And he's very emotional about it, and this is impossible to understand from Judah's point of view. He's seeing this dignified, you know, government official, the highest one next to Pharaoh, completely fall to pieces. And then when the room is empty, it's, it's Judah and his brothers and the prime minister. The prime minister says two words, but not in Egyptian. He looks at them and he says, Ani Yosef. I am Joseph. And it says, and they were dismayed. And they couldn't talk. Can you imagine that situation? So stirred up. The emotions are just running wild. And Judah and his brothers don't understand what's going on. And then this prime minister reveals who he really is. He is Joseph. The brothers are stunned. And Joseph again says, Ani Yosef, Achichem, I am Joseph, your brother. And then he goes on in Hebrew and he says, I'm Joseph, your brother, who you sold into slavery. That Joseph, you dirty rats. (laughs) He doesn't say you dirty rats. But he says to them, come near to me. And they come near and he says, Ani Yosef, Achichem, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now don't, for that reason, be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Now what I like about Joseph is he's, he's talking the facts. You sold me here. Which brothers are you? You're the ones that sold me. Judah, glad to see you. <laughs> I remember, you're the one who said, don't kill him, just sell him. Hi, Judah. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Now, I don't know at what pace Joseph was talking, but I think from the moment he said, Ani Yosef, the world slowed down. For these guys. Whatever pauses took place probably seemed like forever, don't you think? You're Joseph. You're Joseph. You're Joseph? Our brother? The one we sold it the one we sold into slavery. I'm him. What could have been running through their heads? Probably something like this. We sold him. We're all going to be slaves now. It's over. Our freedom is over. But he says, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Look at this, verse 5. Because God sent me before you to preserve life. You see, Joseph understood something. That this was a holy opportunity. This was a moment from God to be reconciled to his brothers. And for them to be reconciled to him, to be reconciled to their father and to God as well. He saw that the hand of God was at work. 
He saw that the grace of God was available for him. Where do you summon such courage to forgive your brothers like that? I'm, I'm thinking about some of the eulogies for Nelson Mandela, who, who struggled uh, in so many ways as, as one who was fighting apartheid and dabbled in, in so many different political theories, but it was only when he was in prison. And he told others he spent 11 years in prison every day finding energy to live by being angry and bitter, and then something happened. And he had a change of heart. And he began to forgive, and he taught the world something about forgiveness and reconciliation. That's like the... The lesson of Joseph. Where do you get that kind of power to forgive and to be reconciled to people who really have done you wrong? You can get it, I believe, from God. But it takes God's grace, and that is what Joseph was relying on. Not his human power. He recognized the opportunity, and he decided that God was working. He realized God was working. He understood how God was working. And he told this to his brothers. And then he moved in the grace and expressed a redemptive attitude to them. Verse 6. For these two years the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So this locates everything. Remember last week we were looking at when Joseph was in prison two extra years beyond what he had hoped for? Of course, he didn't hope ever to be in prison. But there was a moment when he thought he would get out with the help of the chief butler. But it went two years before he got out. And then there was the dream. And then there were how many years of plenty? Say it out loud. Seven years of plenty. Okay, so we have already gone through the seven years of plenty. And then there will be how many total years of famine for Egypt? Seven. Right. And so this is two years into the famine, nine years after Joseph has been released from prison. Nine years he's been serving as the prime minister. And he says, there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Then look at his perspective. Verse 7, God sent me before you, ahead of you, to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph is not thinking about himself now. He's thinking about Israel, the sons of Israel, and the covenant promises that God has made to them. And he realizes he's part of God's redemptive plan. And so this is a holy opportunity for him, and he's taking it. Verse 8, so now it was not you who sent me here. They probably looked at each other. What do you mean? We did it. No, it was God. Now, sometimes when people talk like that, the guilty ones go, we're off the hook. We were just instruments of God. But the fact is they were guilty of sinning against their brother. They were guilty of hating him. They were guilty of enslaving him. And yet God was at work anyway. Which proves that God can work through even the evil plans people have. It does not make those plans good. It simply means God can turn them around and bring some good out of them. 
It was not you who sent me here, but God, and he's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Now let's go to Jacob's holy opportunity. We'll jump ahead to Genesis 45, and we'll pick up in verse 25. And it tells us that um, the brothers go up from Egypt in order to get Jacob, their father. It says, the brothers went up out of Egypt. They came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. He was stunned. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Then Israel. Now who is Israel? Jacob. Jacob is Israel. Israel is Jacob. Same person. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So this is now a holy opportunity for for Jacob. And he sees something. He sees that this is his opportunity to be restored to his son and reunited to his son. But it comes at a price. He has to leave the promised land. Let's look at verse chapter 46. Because an interesting moment takes place. Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Yaakov, Yaakov. And he said, Hineni, here I am. And so the Lord said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. God was saying, this is your opportunity. I'm restoring you to your son. But not only that, I have promised to make you, Israel, into a great nation. Here's the way I'm going to do it. Now, do you remember what God had told Abraham so much earlier? That there would be a time when the sons of Abraham would have to move to another place, out of the promised land, because the iniquity of the Amorites had not been made complete. It was necessary for the children of Israel to live in a different place in order to be protected. And this is being realized in, in, in this whole process. Don't be afraid. See, sometimes opportunities, especially holy opportunities, can make you afraid. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I'll make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Here's the reality. You're going to go down to Egypt, Jacob, and that's where you will die. And Joseph will bring you up. He'll bring your bones up. And will bury you in the promised land. But from this moment on, this is your last time in the land of promise. You will only be brought back here after you have died. Now, for some people, presented with such an opportunity, they wouldn't see it as a holy opportunity. They would see it as an impossibility because their theology wouldn't accommodate what's going on. You see, Jacob could have said, Oh, no, no, God, you promised Abraham and Isaac and you promised me this land. I'm not leaving. You promised I'm not leaving. I can show you the scriptures. 
But it was the will of God that he leave the land. It was the will of God and the promise of God. It was the very way that God was going to fulfill his promises. Sometimes people's theology goes against what God is actually doing and what his word says. And I would encourage you, if you find that happening in your theology, change your theology. To accommodate God's word and the reality of the full measure of counsel that he gives. And don't just pick out a verse that argues your theology against what God's actually doing. Well, Jacob realizes this is his opportunity to be restored to his son Joseph and to be established as a great nation. What's the price? He has to move to Egypt and spend the rest of his life there. He has to become an immigrant at this point. So Judah had holy opportunity. Joseph had holy opportunity. And Jacob had holy opportunity. Each of these changed the course of their personal history and the history of Israel, even the history of the whole world. And and think of what was required. Each one recognized God's hand was at work. They saw God at work, and they decided to be part of what God was doing. Also, each one recognized that God's grace was being poured out. When God's working, His grace is poured out too. And it's possible to do things you couldn't do any other way or at any other time. And each responded to God's grace, and they said, yes, this is the grace of the Lord, because they wanted to do what God was opening up to them. Each one of them acted decisively as well, and they acted quickly. Jacob even said to the Lord, he named yes, Lord, here I am. And they all understood this was a now word and a now action from the Lord. Sometimes people miss their holy opportunities because they think, oh, I can do this later. But there isn't a later. Now there's one more situation that's similar to these that I, I want to uh, look at with you. It's in 1 Samuel 24. It's It's... Another example of a holy opportunity that involves David with King Saul at a point when King Saul was pursuing David and wanted to kill David because King Saul believed David was his mortal enemy. So 1 Samuel 24. This is a holy opportunity. Starting in verse 1, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. And so Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats, a specific place. If you have been to Israel but you have not been to En Gedi, next time you go to Israel, you should absolutely go to En Gedi. It is a marvelous a uh, little oasis near the Dead Sea. That's where David and his men were hiding. Well, Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And here the Bible is just really blunt. Saul went in to relieve himself. I guess he saw a little sign that said men at the front of the cave. Of course, he didn't know who else was in the cave. He thought it was a private stall. David and his men were far back in the cave. And those men, David's men, said, 
Hallelujah. This is the day the Lord spoke of what he said to you. I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. You see, the, the, the soldiers who were with David, the men who were faithful to David, they thought this was a holy opportunity. This is like so good. Can you imagine, David? There is King Saul going to the bathroom. Kill him. This is what God promised for you. David crept up unnoticed. He cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, it's hard to imagine, you know, Saul's somewhere in the front of the cave. The guys are somewhere deep in the cave. And he's, I guess, whispering to them, and they're saying, this is great. This is, this is such an opportunity from God. What, what an amazing situation. God has delivered Saul into your hands. And David says, Lord forbid that I would do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed and lay my hand on him for he's the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men. And he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Verse 8, Then David went out of the cave and he called out to Saul, My lord the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Imagine Saul's shock. He just came out of the cave. I was in the cave. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. He holds up that corner and saw, you know, he looks, oh my gosh. He was that close to me with a knife. See, there's nothing in my hand to indicate I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you. But you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me. But my hand will not touch you. You see, David also saw this was a holy opportunity. But he didn't see it the way his men saw it. They thought this was a time for David to get vengeance by killing Saul. But David saw it very differently. This was a time to prove his innocence to Saul and to show all of Israel how his heart was committed to God and to the king. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing, a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my case and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. So now David is saying, I see this opportunity completely differently. 
God is going to vindicate me by delivering me from your hand, but not by me killing Saul, but by Saul coming to his senses, by Saul repenting and deciding not to pursue me. Verse 16, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? What a change of heart. My son. And he wept aloud. Look at how he was touched with emotion. And he said, you're more righteous than I. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You've just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands. You see how Saul sees it? By all rights, I should have been killed. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? See, the point was made. Saul got it. If you just cut off that corner, it shows you're not my enemy. No enemy would do this. May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Can you imagine this? He was fighting David. He did not want David to come into David's calling. But David saw the holy opportunity that would, that was required for David to come into his calling. And now Saul sees it too and says, you will be king. The kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. And so David gave his oath to Saul, and then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is a great example of a holy opportunity and how it requires of us that we see the grace of God at work. And we see things from God's perspective in order to enter into them. Now I want to spend a few minutes talking about the challenges we face. Why is it when we're presented with opportunities do we not always take them? And so I just want to, I want to prepare you and there's a reason for it. I believe many of you are being presented with opportunities in life. And some of you are not prepared to take advantage of those opportunities that God himself is wanting to bring you into. And I want you to be prepared. So one of the challenges that we all face is the past. The things that have already happened. Imagine imagine even in Judah's case, looking back at his own past, he might have thought, you know what? I failed with my brother Joseph way back when. I was a terrible brother. And I'm unforgiven. And I am outside of God's love and His grace. I am just a, a person who, who does what is wrong and that's who I am. And presented with this new opportunity, instead of offering himself as a substitute, willing to become a slave for the sake of Benjamin, he may have already written himself down and said, you know what? I'm not that good a person. I don't have anything good in me. And he would have missed the holy opportunity. See, sometimes our past haunts us. It could have been the same with Joseph. All the rejection, all the loneliness, all the injustice. We have to face our past and not be encumbered by the past. 
Now, another challenge we face is just recognizing providence, seeing God at work. It's important for us to understand that God is at work and to rightly interpret how God was at work. David did a splendid job of realizing how God was at work. And yet his men did not. They understood the situation completely differently. And yet both thought that they were seeing the hand of God at work. But only one of them was right, and that was David. He saw that God was working. Joseph saw the hand of God working in his own life. He understood that this this terrible experience he had, this life of rejection and injustice and imprisonment that he had had was actually the mysterious hand of God working to position him for a great deliverance for the sake of Israel. And so he recognized this is providence. This is the hand of God at work. Another challenge we face is just our own attitudes. Can you imagine the attitudes that Joseph had to work through? Seeing his brothers, realizing he had all the power he had the the power of the government behind him. By his word, everything could have been done. Can you imagine the attitudes that David had to face? His own attitudes, discovering Saul right there in the cave. He, he could have thought, you know, that guy has done me so wrong. He's He's been so mean. He's ruined my life. Our perspectives can keep us from recognizing the holy opportunities, and all the opportunities that God has given us. We can say it's our baggage. You know what I mean by baggage? Uh, the emotional baggage, the spiritual baggage we carry around. Uh, dictionary says it's past experiences or long-held ideas regarded as burdens and impediments. And sometimes we've got so much bitterness and so much resentment and so much anger and unresolved feelings that we cannot actually move forward. There's no Kadima for us until we let go of the baggage. And, you know, it can take difficult circumstances to get us to the point where we actually let go. For some, it's being in prison. For others, it's facing rejection or injustice or some kind of difficulty. But God is so committed to you and to me that he will allow us to go through a refining experience of difficulty so that we will let go of bitterness. We'll let go of of unforgiveness and we will reorient ourselves to God's redemptive plan. There are so many obstacles. And I've been thinking, what leads to missed missed opportunity? Sometimes it's just the failure to recognize the opportunity. We were looking for one thing and another thing was presented to us. And we just didn't take notice of it. Or we can see an opportunity, but we only see it as a negative opportunity. We look at what could go wrong. Some of you are very good at that. You can analyze the situation and imagine the negatives. The truth is, if you only look at a situation negatively then it's negative. That's all it is. If you only look at it positively, it's positive. But neither of those will be realistic. It's necessary to look at both sides. See the pluses and the minuses. And then be really intentional and to recognize it's an opportunity and decide are you going to take it or not. Another obstacle to us is the failure to act. Many opportunities require action. 
And if you recognize something as an opportunity, but you don't act, it's the same as not even having recognized. Because it doesn't change anything. You can, you can say to yourself, oh, what a great opportunity. I can't decide. I can't decide. That's the same thing as saying, I have no opportunity. And if you're going to take action, you have to take the right kind of action. You have to plan for success with the challenges in mind. Something else that can stop us, an obstacle, is reluctance. We're just reluctant. And we have to decide if reluctance is helping or hindering us. Sometimes reluctance comes from the Lord. We have an uneasiness because the Lord hasn't given us peace. But other kinds of reluctance are just based on our own fears and insecurities. We have to distinguish between them. Fear can be an immense obstacle for people presented with opportunities. For some people, fear is all it takes to stop them. It's not the actual experience, it's the fear of the experience. And I would say to you, you have to decide what kind of person you want to be. Do you want to be a person who can be stopped simply because of fear? Or are you willing to learn how to deal with fear and to go into fearful situations and to have victory? I think it's important to take a position of boldness about fear. You recognize the fear, you face the fear, and you walk through the fear. Now, here's some examples of fear. Fear of failure. Sometimes when we're uh, presented with opportunity, we start thinking, well, what will happen if this doesn't work out very well? And we're afraid. We're afraid we're going to fail. Well, I can tell you this. If you engage in enough opportunities, you will fail, it's at least some of them. And you will have to deal with that. And so the fear of failure is real. And it's important to have a, a positive view that I can do what some people call failing forward. You know what that means? When I fail, it moves me ahead instead of defeats me. We can have the fear of looking bad in others' eyes or losing prestige. The fear of even associating with someone. King David had to, had to think about this, I'm sure. His men were being pursued by the armies of Saul. And yet, David decided to honor Saul verbally and practically. And to call him the anointed of God, the Mashiach of God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that sounded like to David's men? We hate this guy, Saul. He's killed some of us. He's trying to kill all of us. He's trying to kill you. And you're calling him father, the anointed of the Lord. What is wrong with you? But David was prepared. And he was able to speak sharply to his men. And convincingly that he was moved by a higher perspective. And he saw things from God's perspective, not from their perspective. It made such a difference. Something that can stop us is the price. Every opportunity comes at a price. Every opportunity will cost you something. Even the opportunity to be a disciple of Yeshua will cost you. That's why Yeshua said... Count the cost. Don't start and then quit. Count the cost and then decide if you're going to start. Count the cost. Be ready to pay. Another obstacle, the emotions. 
Many opportunities seem very exciting, and they they stir up enthusiasm when we're thinking about them initially, but as we begin to move forward in them, reality sets in. Some of you can identify with that. And, and all of a sudden, you're dealing with challenges and difficulties. And you might even be saying to yourself, why did I even do this? Or, if I had known this, I never would have. How many of you have had that experience? If I knew that it was going to be like this, I never would have done it. Sometimes the Lord actually protects us. He gives us what I call the divine grace of ignorance or stupidity. Where we can't figure things out that may be easy for other people to figure out. But we don't see it and we enter into something only because we want to do what God is showing us to do. And then when we have to pay the price for it, we're saying, wow, I had no idea. But we're committed enough that we pay the price. We just move from enthusiasm to something else. Make sure that you're building up your emotional strength. You need grit. I like that word, grit. Why don't you say it with me? Grit. True grit. You need real grit. You need confidence. You need optimism. You need hope. You need emotional self-control. There will be moments when your emotions can run wild and you've got to be able to control them. And you need what, what soldiers call calm under fire. The ability to be in a difficult, even dangerous situation and not crack. Think about how soldiers are trained. They shoot over their heads. They make them crawl through the mud under barbed wire. They put them in uh, adverse circumstances. If you want to be trained for special forces, they beat you up, right? I, I didn't go through that. But I have friends who did and put in ice water. Put into conditions where a person thinks they're going to die, but they don't die. If they do, I guess they don't go forward in the program. But they, they develop strength. How do they do it? By going through increasingly more difficult, higher pressure situations so that they can be calm under fire. I remember when Sandy and I were in Moscow, Russia, and we were part of a Hero Israel outreach there, bringing the good news of Yeshua to the Jewish community of Moscow, and we were uh, we were responsible for uh, a team that was working uh, in in this outreach. We were responsible for the pastoral side. And we were in Moscow in a stadium, and there were about 20,000, 17, 20,000 people present. And then we saw something happening that was impossible to understand or explain. It was Russian soldiers with machine guns running through the stadium. Now, I can tell you, that's not a good sign in Russia. And we didn't know what was going on. It turned out that there was a bomb threat. And that later we found out there was a real threat of terrorist activity there. But as they were running through and we were trying to figure out what to do, we understood quickly that we needed to evacuate the whole building without creating a panic. And it became our responsibility to evacuate 
those 17, 20,000 people and our whole team, and we didn't know what to do or how to do it. We'd never been in such a situation. We'd never been trained for that. But we just had to submit ourselves to the situation that God put us in. Now, after almost everybody's out and we're, we're thinking about it, it's like, wow, that's, whew, that was scary. I remember Sandy realized, oh, there are musicians down under the stadium in dressing rooms and we can't reach them with walkie-talkies. And I'm thinking, we got most of the people out. (laughs) What are we going to do? Well, we realized we had to go all the way and find the rest of the people. That was our responsibility. Where do you get this? this kind of strength to do it. You get it from being in difficult situations again and again and again and again. So I I tell you, if you want to develop calm under fire, you have to allow yourself to be under fire. Without that, it will never develop in you. If you want to have the ability to go through very challenging situations, you've got to accept a little challenge. And then a bigger challenge. Because if you cave on the the easy challenges, you'll never get stronger. I want to go through just a few more examples of obstacles that can keep us from taking advantage of opportunities. Another one is an undue concern about the reactions of others. We can worry too much about other people's approval. Or their encouragement. What if they don't encourage us, but I need to do it? You know, David had to think about that when he was in the cave and he decided not to kill Saul. He had to think about what his men would do. You have to be prepared for those times when you have to stand on your own. You also have to be prepared for times when you need the support of other key people. Another obstacle is uncertainty. There are moments when it's hard to analyze and you don't have much time and you can't figure it out. And so you feel this uncertainty. And sometimes just the presence of uncertainty in our thought process is enough for us to say, well, I'm not going to do it because I'm not sure. How can I be sure? But I've seen people who ask that question, how can I be sure? They ask it for years and years and they miss opportunities. Another obstacle is lack of resolve. How successful do you think a person will be if they say, well, I'll try it, but it probably won't work? What do you think is the likelihood they're going to succeed? Not very high. Or if they say, well, maybe yeah, maybe no, I'll try. Do you think that person is going to give it their best? I don't. Because they're double-minded. It takes resolve. It it takes this commitment. I'm going to do everything it takes. I'm going to get what I need to do everything that it takes. That kind of resolve. Another obstacle is indecision. Waiting too long or lacking commitment. Some people are indecisive because they can't see far enough down the road and they don't want to do anything unless they can see how this is going to play out all the way till the end. You can't always be able to do that. And then here's the last one. Sometimes people miss opportunities because of issues of control, their own need to control. It's important for you to know how, how much do you need to control. Now, we surely need to plan, but this 
that I'm talking about today is not about how to plan. It's about something else. Planning is important, and good planning is very important. But even so, we will be presented with opportunities that you can't plan for and you can't anticipate. You just find yourself in. You have to decide, are you going to... Are you going to enter into that opportunity or not? Now, sometimes people will not take opportunities if they don't have enough control because they feel it's too risky. If it's their idea, it's a good idea. Do you know people like that? If they come up with the idea, it's safe. If you come up with the idea, it's not. We can't always be sure how things are going to work out. You, you may be facing opportunities and you're running through a lot of what ifs. What if this happens? What if this goes wrong? Some you can plan for and deal with. Some, some you can't. Some opportunities happen so quickly you have to act immediately, even if you can't plan adequately. And so it's really with that in mind that I want to close with prayer for any of you who are facing opportunities. Some of you have real opportunities or a sense that opportunities are about to present themselves to you. And I actually want to pray for you. And you may be in the middle of deciding about an opportunity. You may be recognizing an opportunity. You may be counting the cost. You may be deciding, do I want to do this? Will I do it? If you are in... In the condition where you have been presented with opportunities, I want to pray for you. Or if you sense, too, that you're about to have opportunities for something new, I want to pray for you. So if you are one of those people, I want to ask you to stand so I can pray clearly for you. I don't want you to miss your opportunities. I want you to understand something. Opportunities will cost you but they're worth taking. Lord, we thank you that you're you're the God who opens up opportunities for us. You see the beginning, the middle, and the end. You are the one who creates. You call things that are not as though they were and they come into being. You created us. You shaped us. You formed us. You have given us life and purpose, and for that we're grateful, Lord. And we are standing here Because we recognize that you are the one who's opening up opportunities for us. And we want to have, we want to have your guidance, Lord. And so I pray for every man and every woman standing right now that they would be able to recognize opportunity that's from your hand. And that they would see your hand at work and that they would, like David, rightly interpret how you're working and what you want to do. I pray, Lord, for the holy opportunities. I pray for the opportunities at work, the opportunities with our families, the opportunities with with relationships, with school. I pray, Lord, that we would enter into the grace that you're pouring out that allows us to move forward powerfully, far beyond what we could accomplish on our own. And Lord, I pray also for decisiveness, that we would not be uh, subject to indecision and reluctance and double-mindedness, but we could be decisive and let our yes be yes and our no, no, and we could move forward quickly and decisively. I thank you, Lord, for opportunities that come from your hand that will that will be better than anything we could have planned for or anticipated on our own. Release your power. 
release your victory into us. Bring us, Lord, into the fullness of these opportunities, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. And I don't want you to be standing by yourself. So if you are, would you mind moving? Yivarechecha Adonai, v'yishmarecha. Ye'era Adonai, panavelecha v'yichunecha. Yisa Adonai, panavelecha. Vayasem lecha. Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. You're listening to Solace Radio on the Meander Radio Network. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio streaming on Podbean. If you have any comments, let us know. Your sharing, liking, and subscribing helps Solace Radio reach those in need. If you would like to support us, visit www.solaceradio.org. Avinu Makenu, our Father, our King, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. We yield ourselves to the leading of your Spirit. Father, we thank you that your Spirit is always there to strengthen us, to comfort us, that if we lack wisdom, we can ask you and ask in faith, and you will give us understanding. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. If I, if I had to give a message, a name, a title to this message today, uh, I would call it the blessing of innocence. It came out of a conversation I was having with uh, Pastor Hilton, and we were talking about the blessing of innocence and why there's a blessing. So if, that, if you want to give a title, that's the title. And I'm going to start off by telling you a story. How many people like a story? You know, story time. I'll give you a story time. All right, story time. Um, there was a there was a regular camp meeting type thing that was held in the northern part of New York State. Uh, and, and that camp meeting was geared around testimony time. They would bring, of course, they would bring the latest Christian rock music musicians there. And they would have all these guys, that, mostly guys and some women, but mostly guys, uh, most of them from gang, gang background who had come to believers. Some of them were ex-Hell's uh, Angels. So they have all these motorcycle guys with their toughness and the tattoos and looking pretty rough and people who had been drug dealers, people who had run prostitution rings, and they all had come to faith, and they would gather to have this testimony time to tell about how they came to the Lord. And so you would hear one testimony after another of these horrific situations, people who had given themselves to unbelievable wickedness, but how God came in through Yeshua, through Jesus, and changed their lives how they were able to walk away from these things, how they were able to now serve the kingdom of God. And so one by one, you had these big, broody guys, hells, angels types coming up with some real slick former uh, um, pimps coming up, and they're coming up and they're sharing. And, and a lot of them had not changed the way they look. That's the whole thing. You know, I mean, it's hard to remove if you got tattoos, tattoos all over your face and all over the place and, for like 20 years, you've been dressing a certain way, and he's still riding a Harley motorcycle. They, I've seen guys riding a Harley motorcycle. My son rides a 
motorcycle, but it doesn't look like a Harley type of guy when he's riding his motorcycle. He's more slick and cool and got his, you know. Uh, but the Harley guys, you know, you see them on the road. They they still look a little sitting back, you know, in the big hog of their motor, you know, sort of thing. And that's what a lot of these guys look like. And they're sharing their testimonies one after another. And then on the corner of the stage, this lady who was sort of out of place, little elderly, old lady, very nice looking, no tattoos, none of that, just as, just as sweet as sweet could be, comes on the stage and they look at her like, and one of them went over and was like, what can we do for you? Because she wasn't the type of person that came to these events. And they're like, she says, well, I want to testify. And the, and the guy, one of the guys who was one of the, the MCs, like, really, Grandma? What, what do you got to testify about? You know, this sweet-looking nice lady. And she said, but I got a testimony. I'm going to give Jesus glory. And they said, so they figured she'd come up and maybe talk about how she cheated at bingo or something, you know. And she came up, and she took the mic, and she began to testify. She says, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who delivered me out of sexual immorality, sleeping with many men. He delivered me. He delivered me from polygamy and marriage, not being faithful. He delivered me from drugs and alcohol and, and stealing and murder and bank robbing and, and lying and cheating. And boy, the place got quiet. Like, what, Grandma? And she just went on and on giving this Testament of all the things she was delivered from. And the place got very quiet. They didn't expect that from her. And she stopped. She looked over everybody who was there. She said, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for delivering me. Because I accepted him when I was just a little child. And I've been walking with him ever since. And he delivered me from all those things. I never walked in any of those things because he led me on the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I never experienced any of those things. And the place exploded. It was the best testimony of the day. And the point of this is that this meeting, it seemed like the worse you have done, the better you were giving God glory. And yet this lady gets up and she says, I've done None of those things because I gave my life to the Lord when I was just little. And he's kept me from all of them. And I've lived a life of righteousness and holiness and never experienced any of those things. She was basically saying, you can, you don't have to live a life of regrets. You can live a life of no regrets and you can have an innocence when it comes to sin. There's a blessing in being innocent and never experiencing evil. Now, what do I mean by innocence? Well, you know, sometimes we use the word innocence in a negative way. We talk about, well, that person's just kind of innocent with life. They had, and we mean it by a state of ignorance. We want to say people have a lack of worldly experience or sophistication. They're innocent. Oh, they're, they're, they're going to eat them alive because they're innocent. They need, to, they need to get out in the world and experience the world some and do a few things so that they're not so innocent about things. Well, that's not what I'm talking about when I say innocent. Let me give you another definition of innocence. In the context in which I'm speaking of being innocent, a freedom from guilt or sin through being unacquainted with evil. Let me say it again. A freedom from guilt or sin through being unacquainted with evil. 
Maybe a better word is a blamelessness, a purity, a kadosh, a holiness, being set apart for the things of God and living for him in such a way that you have no experiential knowledge of evil and wickedness. Doesn't mean you don't know there's evil and wickedness. Doesn't mean that you haven't read about evil and weaknesses and, 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 and wickedness, but you've never walked in it. You never experienced it. That's what that little old lady was seeking to say at that conference. Now I've been a believer for quite a while. And I can tell you, testimony time, some people like it because they can kind of experience wickedness through the testimony of other people. And a lot of that testimony time you spend, if you give a testimony for 10 minutes, you spend eight or nine of those minutes talking about all this wickedness you've walked in. Sometimes in very graphic ways. And then the last minute, Jesus rescued you. Yeshua came in and changed you. Well, some people believe that you cannot accept or live for Yeshua until you're old. They believe that children cannot understand the gospel until they're old. So they leave their children to experience things of worldliness in the hope that one day when they're old, they'll find the Lord and able to repent of those things and come to faith. I've met and debated people, even who've been a part of Ahavat Yeshua through the years. There are people who that we invite young people to home group. And there were people had an attitude to say, no, 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 home groups are for the adults. A kabarah for the adults, not for the children. And I said, who said that? The leaders of this community never established that. We've always viewed home groups as a family time. And if the baby makes a lot of noise, just talk louder. It's a family time because God sanctions the family. He makes father and mother and children, and he gives the authority of the parents to raise up the children the way they should go. And so why would we seek to pull them apart all the time? So our home groups, our cabarots, our time to bring the family in. Let's all come together. Well, we're going to talk about deep things that the children can't understand. Who says they can't understand it? Who said? I think that's a false thinking that we've Adopted something that says that the Holy Spirit is only for grown-ups. That the Holy Spirit is not for children. Turn to children. We're talking grown-up things now. We're talking about the kingdom of God. That doesn't concern you until you're old. Until you're grown up. Until you've completed college. Then you can get serious about God. In the meantime, go play. In the meantime, go experience things. I have found that people who take this philosophy have no vision for the years of raising their children up, except to make them happy enough so they're not a pain in your side, making sure they can get various experiences and various events and uh, a wonderful, beautiful childhood, make sure they have lots of parties, lots of this, that, and the other, because I just want them to have a happy childhood. And so with that comes a compromise of God's righteousness. It gets swept aside for the adults, not for children. I want to say I don't agree with that at all. In Mark 10, 13 to 16, it says, Then they brought little children to Yeshua, that he might touch them. But Yeshua's disciples, his disciples, rebuked those who brought them. Don't bring the children over here to be touched by the Lord of the universe. This, this is for 
adult, this is adult time right now. Tell the children to go sit in the corner and be quiet. They don't get any instruction. They don't get any ministry. They, 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 Yeshua's too busy to deal with them. Don't you see he's casting out demons, healing the sick, and, 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 and blessing people? Could you tell your kids to stay over there? These are Yeshua's disciples. These weren't the Pharisees or the Sadducees. These were Yeshua's disciples that he handpicked. I said, rebuking, not just simply suggesting, but rebuking people. How dare you bring your children into this ministry time? How dare you? Scriptures go on, it says, but when Yeshua saw it, he was greatly, not a little bit, but greatly displeased and said to them, said to his disciples, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. But surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them, the children, in his arms. They were little children. Laid his hands on them and he blessed them. Yeshua didn't carry that attitude that the children couldn't be involved in the assembly gathering, in the ministry time. He didn't have a view. You sit them over in the corner and tell them for the next Two hours, just be quiet, say nothing. You can't be involved. This is adult business right now. I think of another situation. There was a lady named Hannah in Scripture, First Samuel 15, uh, verse 15 all the way to First Samuel 3rd chapter. He, she wanted to have a child. She couldn't have a child. She'd been trying for many, many years, which was really hard on her. It was a lot of shame that you carried in those days, especially that if you were married and you could not bring forth a child, bring forth an heir, the blessing of the Lord, that that was something very hard to handle. And she would go to the temple outside the, outside the doors and she would cry unto the Lord, Oh God, have mercy on me. And Eli, who was the high priest that year, saw her out there welling. She was having a type of prayer that she really couldn't even get words together. Just sort of, just crying and weeping and saying things. And he just looked at her and he says, how dare you women come to the temple drunk? And she says, not so. I haven't had anything to drink. My heart is heavy and I'm crying out to God. And then he quickly said to her, you have what you say. And sure enough, she went back home and united with her husband and she became pregnant. And she had a child who she called Samuel. Hannah had this child. And it says in 1 Samuel 127, for this child, for this child I prayed and Yah has granted me my petition when I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to Yah. As long as he lives, he shall be lent. To Yah. So she and her husband worship Yah there. And the little baby grew up, and when he became, he was weaned, where he didn't need his mother's milk anymore, and he could eat solid food. That's how young he was. I don't know how long they kept babies on children on milk in those days, but I'm sure it wasn't, you know, the, the teenage years. And they brought him back to the temple. This child. And so they went to their house, and, and then they went back to their own home, but they left the child with Eli, and it says of the child, the child was left so that he could minister to Yah before Eli, the priest. A child entering into the priesthood service. A child. First Samuel 2.18, and it says, Samuel, 
minister before the Lord, even as a child wearing a linen ephod. They put him in the priestly garments. Can you imagine? You walk to the priesthood, and here's this little child walking around with little priestly garments, serving in, serving in the temple. And we know about Eli's son. They were no good. They were slipping women into the sanctuary to have sexual relationships with them. You know, would you like to see the inside of the tabernacle? I can take you into the holy place. Come on, girl. Go with me to the holy place. And snuck them in and did unmentionable things in the holy place. Another prophet came and spoke to Eli. Because Eli knew this was going on, but he did nothing about it. And he received the rebuking. What would happen to him and to Israel and everything if he did not repent of this? Meanwhile, here's Samuel. First Samuel 2.26. And it says that the child grew in stature. And in favor both with the Lord, with Yah, and with men. Now he's growing up. He's becoming a young man. He's growing up. Think about this. He is serving the Lord. He's not out there playing Nintendo. He's not out there seeking some experience of the world. But he is committed to serving the Lord as a child. And he grows up in that. He grows up serving the Lord. Not running after the worldly things like Eli's sons were doing, even though they were foregrown. And it's there that we read in the third chapter that the Lord visits him as a young, young, young man. Starts to speak to him and raises him up as a prophet to speak the things of the kingdom. This idea that you have to be grown up to serve the Lord. That the gospel is not for little children, but for people who have already gone out in the world and done a lot of worldly things, and then you can come to Jesus. What a falsehood teaching to have. It's interesting, but even in Luke 2.52 concerning Yeshua, who we know as a young person showed up at the temple, and his parents said they had traveled up in a large group for, for celebrating the feast, and they were traveling back, and you got cousins and family and everybody, and you figured, you know, everybody's traveling together, that he would be with them. And then they looked around, they say, is Yeshua with you? No, no, I think he's with cousin so-and-so. Go to cousin so-and-so. Is Yeshua here? No, he's not here. I thought he was with you guys. And they were all asking all around, and Yeshua's not there. Now they're concerned. So they go back to Jerusalem, and they find him. And he's sitting down with a bunch of scribes around him, asking him questions, and he's ministering to them. And they are blown away. How can this little 12-year-old have all this knowledge and understanding? As a child, and the scripture says he grew. Yeshua grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Or how about John the baptizer? When Mary shows up with Yeshua inside of her and and Elizabeth is sitting there with John inside of her. And as soon as they come in, John in the womb leaps with joy. Because they were told in scripture concerning John who leaped for joy that from the womb, he was called as a Nazarite. It says in Luke one fifteen, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's still in his mother's womb. Think about that. In the womb. And filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people have been out of the womb for a long time, they're still not filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet here's a baby is filled with the Holy Spirit who hasn't had opportunity to go out. And mess around in worldly things. But he was called from the womb to holiness and righteousness. 
In Mark 9.42, Yeshua says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. I don't know about you, but having a millstone hung around my neck and thrown to the sea where I sink to the bottom and drown, I don't see any good in that at all, Ralph. And yet Yeshua said it would be better to have that to happen to you than to cause a little one, a child, the children that were coming to Yeshua by your actions, by what you're doing, to cause them to sin. That's weighty, very weighty. Tell you another story. It's from a friend of mine in college who just recently I got a letter from her and her husband of what they've been doing in their ministry. They have a ministry uh, that, that reaches out to Muslims to share Yeshua. Many, 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 many years ago, they were living in Egypt, and her husband was arrested for sharing Yeshua. And he was in prison for a year, and we were praying for him to get out and to do some miraculous thing. They didn't kill him, but he was released. And now they live in England, and they're involved in ministry. They've been involved in ministry for some time. I met this girl while I was in college at George Washington University. I became a believer. And just like the testimonies of the, the bank bikers, I, I can't claim a holy, righteous upbringing for me, the choices I made as a child. I had a testimony. I could give you a testimony. Talk about all the tests I've been through and failed and how Jesus delivered me. And so this girl comes to the campus and she's new to the campus and she's running around and all her life she's been in Christian settings. So she doesn't know how to be worldly. She's walking around on a campus like George Washington University where I went to school. And she's going around greeting everybody with, no, not what's up, how you doing? But she greeted everybody with, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, at a secular university. And, of course, most of the people look at her like, this girl's kind of nutty. And this is how she and I met. I had a security job to help pay for my college. And I was working in one of the dorms, and she lived in the dorm, and she walked in, and she went, first time we met, she went, praise the Lord. And I said, praise him. And she said, oh, there are believers on this campus. I've been doing this for weeks, and nobody responded back with praise. And we became good friends, and I brought her to the fellowship, and she, it wasn't long before she was heading up certain things in the fellowship. Just a wonderful, wonderful believer of the Lord. And as I do with many people, I still look for opportunities. I always get the opportunity. I always like to hear people's story. Today might be what brought you to Ahava Yeshua, but overall, I like to know the story. How did you come to know Yeshua? How did you become a follower of Yeshua? I love to hear people's story. But back then, I had the same attitude. But I was expecting a story, you know, that she would say something like, well, you know, I was running around, slipping out of the house, sleeping around, trying drugs. I was expecting to hear that testimony. And then one day Jesus came to me and saved me, and now I'm living holy. That's what I wanted to hear. But instead, she didn't give me that testimony. She just stared at me. Like I'm looking at you right now, Stephanie. I'm looking at you how she looked at me like, and I asked her again, I'd like to hear your testimony. She said, Rabbi, I heard you. Because I want to hear how you came to Jesus, how you came to know Jesus. She said, well, let me ask you a question first. I said, okay. I thought maybe she wanted to hear my testimony. She didn't. Her question was, Ralph, when did you know that your mother was your mother? I had to think real deep about that. When did I know my mother was my mother? And out of my own mouth, I said, I've always known my mother to be my mother. I can't remember a time that I didn't know she was my mother. She said, that's my relationship with Jesus. I've always known him to be the Lord of my life. And I said, how can this be? 
You got to have a testimony. You got to be all in sin. And then she began to share about her family. Her parents were missionaries on both sides. Her grandparents were missionaries on both sides. Her great-great-grandparents were missionaries on both sides. They had lived all over the world serving the Lord, establishing communities. And she was raised in that. And she says, Ralph, I just have to be as honest as I know how. There was never a time that I can say, think back to how I didn't believe in Jesus when I was six. She said, just as I knew my mom was my mom, I was raised believing in Jesus as Lord and as King. So I don't know how to answer your question. And let me tell you, she's a powerhouse of a believer to this day. I was happy to get the letter from her just recently. Oh, she's still doing some great things. The husband, he's a really good guy. He's a big guy. Really big guy. Loves the Lord deeply. Now, I know some people have a hard time with this. Because you have adopted the philosophy that children can't know the things of God. And at some point in their life after they've gone out and tried out sin and tried in rebellion and tried all the things of the world, then you somebody comes to them and say, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, you need to accept Jesus. And you have no faith and belief that a child can be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. So you raise your children for low expectation. Oh yeah, you make sure they get the Bible stories. They got to know about little David taking down the Goliath. Oh, they're going to get the stories. But you never give the stories in a way that they could be a David throwing the rock and bringing down the giant. It's always a story about what others have done. And when they're old enough and after they've experienced the world, now they can come and become a David. And so we allow our children in believing circles to go out and experience worldliness, hoping that someday... That Pastor Ralph will preach a message when they're coming back from college that will make them go up with an altar call and give their lives to Jesus. To Yeshua. We have no expectation of a little child serving in the temple at the right hand of Eli serving the Lord. Woe unto us that we don't have this faith expectation for our young people. This is why later on, They have to require lots of counseling and ministry. The men in here who did not live a pure life but was sexually involved before you were married and maybe had many different partners, even though God has forgiven you and you know you're forgiven and you've changed, you've turned the corner, you're married now, you're committed, yet I know many men who struggle with the memories of the other women they have been with for all those years because there's a joining together Even if you're not married. I've counseled another man who said, how do you deal with that? How do you put down? That's where you got to cast down the imaginations. But if you don't have any imaginations to cast down, you don't need to spend a lot of energy doing that. So let's have an expectation of raising up. Young people that may hear this, and some that they hear, if your parents are seeking to train you up in the way of the Lord, Not because they believe that you can become a believer, you're going to become a believer much later in life after you've sown your wild oats. They have their rules and regulations to protect you, keep you safe, because they know that to shoot a gun, the bullet's out of the chamber, and you can't call it back. Oh, yes, you can be patched up. The bullet can be removed from you, and you can be healed, and you can learn to live life, but you have this memory of being shot. When from God's perspective, he didn't want you to have that. 
He didn't want you to have this memory that, oh, I did this, that, and that. Oh, yes, he wants to be glorified that he's redeemed you, that he loves you, that he forgives you. And I'm not saying because you have gone down a path of wickedness and that you came to the Lord, now you know the Lord that, that you are bad goods. God is able to make you holy. But you know the one thing he doesn't do? He does not remove. In other words, you decide to wrestle with God, and now for the rest of your life, you're walking with a limp and not able to run. Oh, yes. Some of us are walking with limps. God's still using us. God still has a call on our lives. He's forgiving you. He loves you. But you limping. Well, he never meant for you to have to limp. This is the blessing that Hilton and I were talking about, the blessing of innocence. We need to raise and train up our young people in a way that they choose life early. Deuteronomy 30, 19, God gathers the whole assembly of Israel, and that included the children. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. <laughs> that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both of you, that both you and your descendants may live. Here's how some people see this. God called them forth. The children were overplaying. Told, shh, 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 be quiet. The Lord's about to speak. You need to go over there. Just here, here's some toys. Here's a coloring book. Now, you adults, come on up. Teenagers, you need to go over here. So the adults can hear this message, choose life. No, that's not how it happened. Families came up with their babies. With their whole families, they stood there. My whole family's here today, standing before the Lord. And they all are hearing, down to the little baby, are hearing the Lord speak and saying, choose life. Choose life. You do not have to go soil yourself with the sinfulness of this world before you come to know the Lord. You can know him now. You can walk with him now. And you have no regrets. You have a certain sense of innocence and purity that you can't have even with redemption so what about you pastor look at what god's done in your life oh if he let me oh if he arranged it that he will reverse time and let me go back to when i was a child and decided to be rebellious oh if he would let me i would not go those routes i could have an innocence before you that i do not have oh i'm not saying i'm not forgiven i'm not saying i'm not holy god has made me holy God has forgiven me. I am very much aware of that, walking it every day. But I also know that as a believer, how many times I had to cast down imaginations that I would not have had to cast down if I had not decided to go out and play inside the world. But I chose to play in the world. So now as a believer, the enemy knows that ways he can try to come at me. Now thank God the Lord matured me up enough to know how to use the weapons of warfare to say, nah, you ain't getting any play here. But I wish I could be that brother or sister that he never gives them any play because he has nothing on them. Nothing at all. And that's what we've been trying, especially with our, our, our teen young adults. They, they probably think we're trying to tie their hands. They probably think we're trying to keep them from experiencing and, and, and having fun and this, that, and the other. But really, we're wanting you to have an experience that we ourselves don't have of being pure and holy before God in a way of innocence. That will allow you as you get older to respond to God in a more intimate way that rest of us have to wrestle with to get there. Matthew 16, 26. What does it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's a scripture that says there are things that seem right to a man, but the end is destruction. 
we live in a world where evil is being exalted. Now, I know some of you are like, oh, here we go again. No, it's true. Especially now. Not that it hasn't happened before. I'm sure during the time of Rome, it was exalted as well. But there was a time when the church we got victory and, and the word of God was reigning and supreme and moving. And now we're coming to a place where the word of God is being pushed to the side. And the culture of the world is not about God anymore. In fact, it can be very anti-God. And yet our young people are growing up in that. And because of media, especially the social network, they get exposed to things that shape their mind. They don't think so, but it does. And it, it means it's the whole advertisement on steroids. You do understand that when a commercial comes on and you're watching a movie on TV and a commercial comes on, it's advertisement. They're trying to sell you something. They're trying to get you to link into it, even if at the end they speak really fast and tell you about how that medicine can cause all this death in you. They speak that part real fast. First part is like, oh, Stephanie, this medicine will make you fly like Superman. This medicine will make you feel wonderful. You need to buy this. You're like, yeah, maybe I do need to buy that. And then at the end, uh, medicine known to cause cancer, disease, delusion, this, that, and the other. It's real fast. Real quick. Where's it over? You go, did they just say this medicine? will cause death? Did they just say that? And they want me to buy it? Really? I love my grandmother. When she was in her 80s, she carried this big fat book. And she would go to the doctors. And they said, well, we're going to prescribe this, that, and the other. She goes, hold on. Hold it. It says this, that, and the other. Do you have anything else? Well, ma'am, we can't. No, I am not going to take this. Give me something else. I, I know I need that to get the inflammation down, but I'm not taking that because that has too many side effects. Nope, not going to do it. But see, we don't do that all the time. We want to experience the world. We want to be the in crowd. And with the pressure of media, social media special, especially, there is a push greater than ever. It's not a, it's not new except for the, the how big it is. There was peer pressure when I was in school. Why did I do some of the things I did? Peer pressure. I wanted to be in. I wanted to be no Ralph is cool. I was so cool, I dropped my given name and picked a different name that my martial arts instructor gave me. And didn't go by Ralph until I became a believer. I went back to the name my parents gave me. But when I was little, I took on this other name, this own persona that adopted Eastern religions and belief system. And that became who I was. And I had peer pressure. I didn't think I had peer pressure, but it was there. Well, it's peer pressure today, <laughs> but it's more sophisticated. Facebook and TikTok and all the other stuff, Twitter and all that sort of stuff. You say, well, I use it for good. Yes, you can use it for good. There's a way to do that. But the vast majority are not doing that. Too many of our young people are being sucked in to the deception, to the, to the lies, to the pressure. And parents are struggling. First John 2.16, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. All that's in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from Abba, but it's of the world system. The world system works and operates in the area of lust and pride and seeks to motivate you in that way. Oh, you're missing out. The rest of the world is doing this and you are not being allowed to do this. Whoa, you're missing out. And that lust starts to rise up. Yeah, I'm missing out. Sandra and I made decisions to not allow our children to be exposed to certain things. Now, if you do that, does that mean when they're older, 
that they may give in when you don't have that control. They might. But while they're under my watch, like somebody asked me, why do you homeschool your kids? Why are you homeschooling? And I, I, I don't know. I could have gotten arrested for this answer. I don't know. My answer used to be to people, because I want to be the first to brainwash my kids. I don't want the government system to brainwash my kids. I don't even want the private school down the street to, to brainwash my kids. I want the opportunity to brainwash my kids. That could have got me in jail. But the reality is, if you're going to spend eight hours a day in a certain environment, believe me, you're being instructed. Not only in just what's on the paper, but the attitude of the classroom. And where, when I was growing up, the secular system was rooted in Scripture, believe it or not. I remember, as a child, they would pray. Secular school, can you believe that? Secular school, let's pray and ask God's favor on the class and study today. Christian schools do that, but secular schools? As I shared last week, I remember growing up, I first learned about Thanksgiving and thanking God at school. Walked in and they taught it to us year after year. By the time I got to high school, it wasn't being taught anymore. It was banned from the secular system. And now it's even worse. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's foregrown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. When it comes from God, there's no underlining other thing trying to lead you astray. When it comes from God, it's about the kingdom of God, the righteousness of God. And we know the scripture says that we're to seek the kingdom first and its righteousness. Not when you're 30 years old do you start doing that. But you can start that when you're little. Parents, help your kids to know how to seek the kingdom of God. Focus them on the word of God. Help them to make choices for the kingdom. Learn to reason with them in such a way. Because they may say, well, why do I need to do this? They may say, I want to do this. And say, well, yeah, you may want to do that. But the scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man that leads to destruction. Does this way lead to destruction? Does this way glorify the kingdom of God? Does it move you more into a place of knowing God and living for God? Or are you seeking to be a hedon, a hedonist? Are you seeking to just experience pleasure for the sake of pleasure? Hedonism is all about that. It's a pursuit of pleasure, no matter what the consequences might be. Now, over time, they realized that when they saw Bill and Tim and Johnny and, and Susan all die because they all tried to try a certain poison to see what would happen, to experience it, and they die, they go, hmm. Some of them were smart enough to go, let's take that one off the list. Some of them tried it anyway because of the pursuit of pleasure, pursuit of knowing sin. Isn't that what happened in the Garden of Eden from the beginning? God said, I've given you all these trees to eat from. Only one tree you're not to eat from. Only one. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Leave that one alone. And out of all the various trees, all the different fruits they could eat of, They get tempted to try that tree. And we are where we are today because of that. However, though we might be in a hole that was dug by our great ancestors, we don't have to dig it even deeper. 
We're already in a hole needing a savior to save us. But let's not make him use a 50-foot ladder when all he needs is a three-foot ladder. To go out and experience what is wrong, to choose against the kingdom of God and God's word is a really stupid thing to do. Got to put it plain. It's stupid. God says before you, choose life. No, 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 no. I'm going to try a little bit of this over here. Because if I don't try this over here, I'm missing out on something. So I want to go try that. My friend, she slept with a guy. I want to see what that is like too. My friend, he has several girls that he's been with. My friend is trying some drugs. I want to see what that feels like so I can preach more effectively that it's wrong to try it. I want to experience the consequences of it myself so that I can tell people, you don't want to go down there because it'll mess you up. How about saying, you don't want to go down, it'll mess you up. And no, I've never tried it, and I won't, but the records are out there. You can read all about it. I was in a, a discussion of believers in the workplace. It was years ago when the homosexual issue first came big. And there was a lot of debate going on. And I'm listening to these fellow confessors of Yeshua, of Jesus, talk about whether it's wrong or right. Some would say, well, the, the law is moving that. And what right do we have to tell people what they feel? Maybe they were born that way. And, and, and they have a right to express themselves. And, and I'm just listening to these believers, not unbelievers. These are all Jesus' Lord believers. And I'm just listening to this debate. And after about 15, 20 minutes of listening, I kind of say, I got something to say. And they say, what do you have to say? I said, what about God? And they went, huh? I said, what does God have to say about this? I know what the United States is saying. You told me what your pastor is saying. You tell me what you believe. But what I don't hear is anybody saying, what does God say? And you all confess Jesus as Lord of your life. So as Jesus as Lord of your life, what does God say about homosexuality? He says it's an abomination. Didn't say you had to hate. You can love and tell people they need to come to God. God's provided a way for them to be forgiven and restored. But everything I was hearing from those guys had nothing to do with God's redemption. It was all about, well, you know, they're people too. We need to just understand that's the desires they have, and we got to accommodate that. I will not accommodate that. I'll simply speak the truth. It is an abomination. And then I'll offer that there is a way to be forgiven, and not only forgiven, but restored. I know the world is saying for those who believe that, that, homo, that you can come out of homosexuality, they say, oh, that's not possible. Our God is a redeeming God who says he can change your very nature. He can take you out of the, the stronghold of the evil one, his kingdom, and bring you into his kingdom. He says he'll give you, he'll take out the heart of stone and he'll put in the heart of flesh. If you're struggling with something, it is Yeshua that you need to go to to be put in right order. He says, Pastor, you don't understand, I'm struggling. No, I know about struggle. Believe me. But I know who's greater than the struggle. And he will change you from the inside of out if you will exercise faith. We're told to walk in the spirit. I won't give the whole list, but you look at Galatians 5, 19 to 21. It gives a list of what's called the works of the flesh. And it warns about those things. That those who do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But it says you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh if you walk in the spirit. Galatians 5, 16. How do you walk in the spirit? Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Set your eyes on the promises of God and what he's able to do, what he's working to do in your life. You can't go live in a little cave and be separate from what's going on around us. I'm going to tell you, evil is going to increase in the world. And it's going to increase in such a way that evil will become the norm. 
And those of us who are righteous will be seen as an enemy, that we need to be have some sort of special treatment, that we're bigots, that we're judgmental, that we're harsh, that we don't want anybody to have any fun. But Yeshua says, I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. That's what he said. Yeshua. He wants to believe God. I choose life. Well, you're going to miss out on some stuff. How I wish I could have missed out on a lot of stuff I've already tried. Oh, how I wish I could have missed out. All the years I wasted at the club. All the years I wasted trying this, trying that. Thinking I was in right. And all it was doing was slowly destroying me. Thank God there were people praying for me. Thank God he gave me a heart to respond to the call and repent and come into the kingdom. Live a life after you set your mind on things above. Galatians 5, 22 to 28 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Live a life practicing the fruit of the Spirit. I've shared a, one more story. I shared a story with you many years ago. Many of you probably already know it. About the young believer or the, who confessed that he was a believer. He used to come to me all the time and say, is this a sin? Is this a sin? Is this a sin? Is this a sin? And one of my weaknesses is I like to, I'll answer your question. I just give you the, well, the Bible says this, that, and the other. I've been trying to learn more from Marcellus, who I've watched over and over again, hear what God is saying in the moment, and won't answer the question, but go right to the heart of the matter. I love that about you, brother. And at that time, I was young, and I just, I was the Bible answer man. That was who I was. I'm the Bible answer man. Ask me a question. I'll tell you what the Bible says about it. And I did this week after week after week with this guy. And he came to me again. He says, I have a question. Is this a sin? And I was getting ready to answer his question. And the Spirit of the Lord rose up inside me and said, ask him, is it a righteousness? And I was obedient. And I let come out of my mouth, is it a righteousness? And he went, huh? I said, is the thing you want to do, is it a righteousness? And he, his excitement dropped. He head looked down. He says, no. And then God gave me other words to speak to him. Stop spending your life trying to figure out what is a sin and what's not a sin. Stop finding out where to draw the line of how much of the world you can experience and still be right with God. Stop playing games. The Bible says set your mind on things above, not things below. You're to look to the kingdom and its righteousness first. You're to pursue it with all of your heart, all of your being. Not when you're 33. You don't have to wait to then. You can do it at 10. You can do it at 15. You can do it at 6 years old. You can make a choice that I want to be righteous before the Lord. I accept Yeshua as my Lord, as the one that saves me. You don't have to wait until you can sow your wild oats and then come to the Lord. Why not sow seeds of righteousness instead for your entire life and upbringing? I can tell you so many of us, if God would do that, but he doesn't do it, would let us go back and say, you know what? I pull up all those seeds that I was sowing, and now I want to see sow Seeds of righteousness. Seeds of righteousness. I want to bless people. I want to encourage people. I want there to be no regrets in my life. Well, some of us have to go to God and say, God, I got regrets. But thank you for the blood of Yeshua and the forgiveness you offer me. What can I do in the meantime? Encourage the next generation. Don't go there. Don't go there. Seek the kingdom first and its righteousness. Because when you come into maturity and you have that foundation, you will have no regrets. And the world will give you philosophical things. You deal with the issue about maintaining your purity, both men and women, before getting married, that you'd have no sexual experience until you've said, I do. People will say, well, you know, you wouldn't buy a pair of shoes without trying them on first. The world has wisdom 
how they say things. My response to that is, you wouldn't buy ice cream from me if I ran an ice cream store after I spat on it and lick it. Here you go. No, thank you. Uh, could you give me something else? Okay. Here you go. No, 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 no. I don't want one that's spat on and licked on. And as much as people might say they don't, and they wouldn't judge in that way, people do. Even people have been forgiven to come in a relationship, and sometimes they can. I know I have to counsel people. This is how I know some of this stuff. I have to counsel a couple that's struggling because the husband or the wife brings up memory of the people they've been with before, and it's having impact on the marriage. God never wanted you to have to deal with that. He wanted you from the womb to be filled with his spirit, to be called when you're young, to serve God so that you would have no regrets. One last thing. You've heard this before probably from many different pastors. Life is not a rehearsal. It's not a rehearsal. You get one shot at this thing, and every choice you make impacts you, whether for good or for bad, every choice impacts you. Can God redeem the bad choices? Of course. Yeshua is the great redeemer. But having that blessing that Pastor Hilton and I was talking about of innocence can only come by you walking and making a choice for him. So I challenge you, whether young or old, but especially if you're young, make a choice from this day on. Yeshua, I'm after your kingdom. I'll turn off the TikTok. I'll turn off the other philosophies in my life. I turn them all off. I'm setting my eyes on your kingdom, and I want your kingdom. And I want to walk upright from this point on so that I have no regrets. And let me tell you, it's hard. Because some of the things, how can I put this? The scripture says that Satan comes as an angel of light. And his workers come that way. They deceive you. They trick you. Satan doesn't knock on your door and say, hi, I'm Satan. I'm here to deceive you. That would be so much easier, right? No, he, he comes in appearing that what he's offering you is the right thing. This is the way to go. This is what you need to do. And he takes time to craft it in such a way that from a human perspective and wisdom, it sounds good. I mean, everybody else is doing it anyway. There's not much harm in that. Lots of people do it. I've counseled people, young people, who've had the idea that, well, Pastor Rob, you know, y'all say it's wrong to, to be involved in a relationship outside of marriage, but I'm involved and I'm loving it. Well, pleasure does seem pleasurable at the moment until sin comes forth and it brings forth what it really wants to do to you because that's the way Satan operates, presents himself as an angel of light. But in the end, Scripture says he comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. Yeshua came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. And so sometimes you got to think outside of the box and ask yourself when you're being drawn and pulled to go do a certain thing, that it's okay in the world, but believers are saying, no, no, you shouldn't go there. And then sadly, some believers say, yes, yes, you should go there. I've had believers say, well, you know, I just want my children to experience life. I want them to have that experiential knowledge of things. It's called sowing your wild oats, Ben. You know how many believers tell, especially young men, you know, you reach that age, you need to go out and sow your wild oats before you settle down. You know how many men are told that? Going out and experience life and Try it out, and when you got it all out of your system, find a nice girl who's kept herself pure and marry her. Well, what about all the other ones I was with? Why not one of them? That was a practice, man. You're just practicing. I had a guy, well, I I just had to make my own confession before I was a believer. Some friends of mine said, hey, man, if you really want to find a nice girl, 
go to church. I was running around to all the parties and doing all this sort of stuff. And I met this girl, and she said, the only way you can talk to me is you go to church. I was an atheist. I didn't believe in God. But I got on my best suit, and I went to church just so I could be with her. And not the most, I was a good-looking fella. I knew how to dress back then. I knew how to be suave. So when I walked up in there, I was looking good. And it was affecting her. She saw me coming. Thank God there was a deacon in that church. He's watching the whole thing. And after church service is over, he came up and said, young man, come here. Took me in the back. I see what you're trying to do. And I rebuke it right now. It's not going to happen in this church. He said, I know who your father is. (laughs) He knew my parents were well, my parents were well known. And I knew, and he just, he scared me. I never went back to that church again. Never went back. I was, I was like, oh man, they done ratted me out. He done called my number, man. Didn't want to go there. And sometimes the young ladies get mad because I focus on protecting them. But we, the society hasn't changed so much. It's changing a little. That most of the time the guys are the pursuer. Sometimes it turns around the other way. But most of the time the guy pursues the girl. It's the guy who will show up at church and act religious and hope that he can win the girl. Parents, especially you fathers, when you see that, don't be don't be afraid to make your daughter upset with you. Call it out. Speak to them. Young man, come here. I need to talk with you. I see what you're trying to do, but you ain't doing it with my daughter. Oh, you know, you, you look, no. And if you don't have a father, find an older brother in the Lord in here. And if you can't find an older brother in the Lord, grab one of the elders and say, I brought this guy. He came here because he's interested in me. Could you talk to him? They may never come back again. Okay. <laughs> you're like, I ain't going back there because they got watchdogs in that community. Where are my chicken people? All the people raising chickens. Got a lot of you. Isn't it nice to have something or somebody to watch over the chickens? Because if you're standing out there with the chickens and the fox comes, he sees you. He's like, I'm going to get me some chicken today. I'm, oh, Mr. Nelson's out there with the shotgun. I think I won't get any chickens today. I think I'll go the other way. It's good to have a watch person. We need to watch each other. For those of you who are close to other families, maybe you see some things that are they're doing wrong. They're believing that lie that the children have to go experience all these things before they serve the Lord. Pray about how you can have an entrance way to encourage them like, no, train your child up in the way they should go. And when they are mature, they will not depart from it. I love it. Notice what it says, what it doesn't say. Train up a child in, in the way they should go. And when they're old, they will return back to serving God. Mm, no, That's not what it says. It says they shall not depart. So the whole idea when they're under your training, you keeping, you're, you're the one that's being the Holy Spirit. You're, but you're trying to bring them to the place of maturity where they will embrace the Holy Spirit for themselves. And when they get there, they will not depart from you being the schoolmaster to saying, this is the way you're to live. They will not depart when they, if they embrace it. Now if they reject you and your training, they'll wrestle with the Holy Spirit. The prodigal son is a perfect example in scripture, but he remembered to go back to his father's house. So anyway, that's what's on my heart. I would love to see more young people because we old people, it's, we've done what we did. And we can choose to walk out from this point on, but whatever we did in the past, we did. And we may be forgiven, but we know what we did. Somebody said, what the Bible says that God takes your sins and throws it in the sea of forgiveness. Yes, he does. The sea of, un- of forgetfulness. 
Meaning he doesn't hold that against you anymore. But he didn't say he would, he would wash your brain so you don't remember what you did. You still know what you did. You know exactly what you did. And some of you really know because it's part of your testimony. So you retell it over and over again. Thank you, Lord. Father, just pray that you allow us to be a community that pursues you early and often. That we would be a community that has faith to train our children up in the way they should go. So when they come to maturity, they will stay in that road of how we were training them. They will not depart from it. Help our young people to say yes. We know the pressures they're under in this world. Help them to see past the temptations of the evil one who wants to destroy them and accept the rebuke that comes from you, that they may become vessels, instruments of righteousness for the kingdom of God. Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Talk radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Montevisit, Colorado. So we're going to be in chapter 15. It's a short chapter. So I know some of you are like, yes, short sermon. We'll see. Um, But we're in chapter 15. And if you remember to get to chapter 15, we had to do a lot of other study. We had to go back to Ezekiel, right? We had to go back to Psalms. We did Psalm 111. We did Psalm 139 and we did Psalm 86 because they're all part of this. Um, That What's happening in this chapter, although it's short, is a transition. And let me let me say this is there's a few themes in here that are super important. If you remember anything from this sermon at all, I want you to remember the phrase first and last. So first and last is is important because God is there at the beginning and he's there at the end. He's the first and he's the last. He's the alpha and the omega. Right. And this idea is as Yeshua is being revealed, what we find out is he's the one who was there at the beginning, but he's also the one who's there at the end. And that means, and particularly in this section of scripture, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is the end of the Bible. It's the end of the story. And we're coming to the end of the world. And at the end of the world, there is one last set of plagues. And it's super important to sort of pause for a minute and look at all the things you've been through maybe in the last year. Maybe you've been through difficult things. Maybe you've had hard things happen in your family. I know most of us have had some really hard things over the last couple of years. What if we had we knew for certain that although those things happen and although those things continue to happen, there is a day coming where there will be the last thing that happens. This will be the last time. I was listening to a guy on the radio talk about um, how he was in the military and he got sent to uh, Iraq for two tours and he came back and he got married and he had a kid and he started in business school and then in the process of going to business school they recalled him to go to Afghanistan and he was like I made a promise but I also my whole life now is different it was an involuntary recall you know it's one of those you have to go um, so he went um, and he was talking about on the radio what that felt like to have to go back. And he said, I hope this is the last time. I hope I don't have to go back. So think about the hard things that have happened, the, the, the difficult things that you've been through. And imagine if you know for a fact or you know in the future that God is promising that there will be a last time. Right? There'll be a last tear. There'll be a last plague. There'll be a last judgment. And remember how we talked about last week that we want God to judge us? Like if we are in relationship with God, we want him to be our best critiquer, right? Because he is the best at everything. And just like any hero you've ever had in your life, if that hero would come in the room and allow you to to uh, 
you know, play something for him or, and then they showed you what they knew, you wouldn't be insulted by it. You would go, oh, I'm so thankful for the critique, for the judgment, right? In the same way, if we believe that God is the beginning and the end, if Yeshua is the Alpha and the Omega, then all of the tears that you have cried, all of the pain that you have felt, there is a day where there's coming where there will be a last tear and there will be a last judgment. Right. So we talk about the last judgment as this like destructive force. But really, I think the key word is not judgment because that's a good thing for us. Right. It's the word last. This is the last time. The, the last time we see terrible things, the last time there's an injustice, the last time we see uh, the world fighting against itself, the last war, the last tear, the last pain. Right. So what's revealed about Yeshua is he's the beginning and he's the end. And I think if you can just remember that, then whatever you're going through now may be the next time, but you'll know that there is a last time. Amen? Does that make sense? Okay, so we're going to be in chapter 15. He says, then I saw another sign. Every time you see this in the book of Revelation, he's essentially saying the vision shifts a little bit. Something changes. You remember, sometimes you see things in heaven. Sometimes he sees things on the ground. Right? He says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. Right? That's the important part. Right? This is the last. Now, this last, for us, is going to last a couple weeks. Because we're going to go through all the plagues and we're going to see the connections to Passover. We're going to see the connections to the plagues in Egypt. But imagine if you said, whatever you're going through, whatever plague... Right? Whatever pain, whatever tear, this is the beginning of the end. And the beginning of the end is not a scary thing. It's literally the last time it's going to feel that way. Right? So let me say it again. I saw another sign in heaven. So it's not on earth. Great and marvelous. So now he thinks it's awesome. Right? Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. So there should be some encouragement to know that there is a day coming where there will be no more plagues. Right? Doesn't that sound good? Right? There will be one last time. He says, because in them the wrath of God is finished. So notice that the wrath of God comes because we heap up our sin. He, as a good judge, waits for us to build up enough sin that he can judge us fairly. He judges us fairly. We come to him and we can either take what the judgment is or we can take somebody else's payment. Right? We either pay for it ourselves or, or we allow Yeshua the Messiah to pay for it on the cross. Right? So as we've seen in this entire book, Yeshua is sitting on the throne. All of the elders, all of the angels, all of the lightning, all of the storms are all facing toward Him. All of creation is declaring He is like the Lamb of God who, who takes away the sin of the world. And we're seeing these visions and then all of a sudden this beast comes up and the beast tries to destroy that vision and utterly fails. And if you go back to chapter 11, you remember in, in chapter 11 that this is all happening after um so it's chapter 11 verses 17 it says we give thanks to you O lord god the almighty who who uh who are and were because you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign and the nations were enraged your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name the small and the great and destroy those who destroy the earth And the temple of God, which in heaven was opened and the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple and there was flashing of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Right. This idea that there is a day coming 
where he's going to take his throne for the last, like for the last time and permanent time because of what he's done. And the Ark of the Covenant is going to be used in all of its glory to, to testify, which is really what it is. It's a testimony of what God has done and what he's going to do. You follow me on this? Okay. So I saw another sign in heaven. So he sees this sign. This is in heaven and he sees these angels. Now, the graphic that I made, I think is hilarious to me. Um, because I made it pretty because you've probably seen these in people's backyards, right? You maybe have even said, oh, it's like a bird bath, right? They sell them at Cracker Barrel. And, but there is no symbol in the Bible where an angel is carrying a bowl of anything and it's a good thing. So it's essentially, if you have one of these in your backyard, you have to think of it as a wrath bath. <laughs> that you have a wrath bath in your backyard. Um, but it shows what happens when people get more interested in re- religious things. And they do in actually understanding the Bible. Because angels holding bowls is not generally a good thing, right? But, I mean, the birds like it. Um, but I thought it was funny that when I Googled, when I, when I Googled, like, angel holding a bowl, right? Because I'm looking for people who've drawn this, people who've done this. The majority of pictures that came up were bird baths. And I went, wow, that says something about our, our Bible literacy, right? That we, that we have wrath baths and we don't even know it. Um, but there are seven angels with seven. So the question is, are these, are these, is this a perfect amount of angels? Is it symbolic of something? Is it really seven? Um, and I think in some levels it could just represent perfection. Like there was a perfect number of angels with a perfect number of bowls. Um, cause you remember that the bowls represent with the priest where they would put the incense and even it just happens to line up that in this Torah portion we had two, what happens when two uh, priests don't follow God's instruction, even though they literally had just been trained. This was the first day of their job. And they were like, we're going to try drinking and seeing what happens right before we do. You know, and they tried something else. And God said, whoa, you were not being careful with my power. Right. And the fire comes out and consumes them. And in the in the New Testament reading that we read today is very similar to when the, the couple lied about the, to the Holy Spirit about what they had actually done. And they died from it. They were they were playing with God's power and they didn't even know it. Right. So there's this sense of. It's funny that we're talking about these bowls. And the, and the bowls are the real bowls that are in heaven that the priests were representing when they did it on earth. Right? Because remember, these are all prophetic patterns. That the tabernacle is, is built on a, uh, blueprint that God gave to Moses that he saw in heaven. Right? So if the angels have bowls and the bowls represent the incense and the incense re- represents the prayers and the prayers of the, of the people go up and it's an, a, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now he's taking all of those prayers and he's answering all of them. And the answer to his prayers, all of the prayers of when, Lord, are you going to do something? When are you going to bring justice? When are you going to stop all this pain? When are you going to do something about about this thing that happened in my life? When are you going to make this right? God says, the day is today. And the angels show up and they pick up the bowls and they start pouring out the wrath on... on. Do you see? God answers all of those prayers on one glorious day, which we're going to talk more about next week. But here you have this sign in heaven, these maybe perfect number, and it says that there were seven plagues, but these were the last ones. And I think there's something comforting to me about that. But it also says that there's a continuity, and it also says there's a harmony in the scriptures. That he's the beginning and the end, that at the beginning this happened, and at the end this is happening, and God was there at both. He was there in the beginning, and he's there at the end. And the wrath of God is finished. Right? I think for us who are in the middle of the story, we go, God, when are you going to do something about this? Right? 
We want him to do something about it now. And then we have here he's saying he is not only doing something about it, he's going to finish the work, which should bring us all the way back to the beginning when he sat down on the Sabbath and declared his work done. It's the same thing he did when he was on the cross, when he looked down and he said, it is finished. Right? Same word, by the way. This idea that it's done. My work is finished. We, we can celebrate Shabbat because the king is on his throne. Right? The creation is made. He looked at it and it was good. We messed it up. So he solves a human problem with a heavenly answer and he sends his son to die on the cross. And when he's on the cross, he says, now it is finished. Right? And then the devil starts a fight. And then we all suffer from that fight. And then there's a day coming where it will really be done. Right? His work is done. The work on the cross is done. And now all of God's wrath is finished. And it should make you feel like there's harmony in Scripture. There's structure in Scripture. God has... Um, he knows what he's doing. He's there at the beginning. He's there at the end. And there's there's a finality to all of this that is encouraging on some level, even though it comes with um, all of the plagues of Egypt. I would imagine that there must have been that same feeling when we were in Egypt. And every time a plague came, we thought, this has got to be it. And Mo- and Moses said, okay, we're going to turn the, the water, the Nile River to blood. This is going to convince him. Right. And I'm sure they had a meeting that night. I'm even sure they even had a meal and they said, watch this, watch what's going to happen. And then Pharaoh says, no. And there's more pain. Right. And there's more pain and there's more pain. And every time they must have thought this has got to be it. I mean, he's got to listen to this one. Right. Until there was a moment at the end of the story where the Pharaoh's son dies and he goes, "Okay, that's it. Get out of my country. Sends us away. And then we thought, that's got to be it. But then we're in the wilderness and we end up at the Red Sea and we get stuck between the Red Sea and God is the one who told us to go there. And he brings us to this place where we're completely stuck. And we look to our right and there's desert. We look to our left and there's desert. We look forward, there's a giant sea. There's no way across. And you look back and you can hear the thundering horses coming at you. And you see the smoke of the enemy rising And Pharaoh is on his way. And just when we thought there was going to be no more pain and God's justice was going to be on Pharaoh, we were stuck in the middle between a literally like a like a sea and a hard place. Right. So then Moses tells us to go to sleep. And he says, and all night the wind blew. And when the wind blew, when we woke up, Moses had prayed to God and God gave him the ability to part the sea. So we serve a God who can do the impossible, right? We can, we serve a God who says, listen, when you look at your problem and you look to your right and to your left, you think you're stuck and you look back and you see only disaster. I can make a brand new way. And in the same way he made a brand new way at the Red Sea, he made a brand new way by sending his son to die for us on a cross and his blood, which is the lamb of God, the blood of the lamb that we put on the doorpost becomes the lamb of God for real. And it gives us freedom like we've never known. Right? And there's a continuity to that, that God, these prophetic patterns should make you go, oh, there are markers. 
I can see what God is doing. I see what he's done in the past. I can see what he's currently doing. And I believe with full assurance that he's going to do it in the future. So even if you've been through a terrible thing now, even if you're currently going through a hard thing and you've been through that hard thing over and over and over and your prayer is when God, here is the answer that there's a day coming in the future where he will pour out all of those prayers and he will not only do something about it, that he will finish it and it'll be the last time that any of us have to go through anything like that ever again. He will finally solve the problem that we created, that we continue to create. You would think that we would stop and we would go, okay, we've done enough killing each other. But no, we seem to want to keep, as human beings, we want to keep doing it and keep doing it. So, verse 2, I know that's a lot for verse 1. Verse 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. I don't think there's a coincidence that they're standing on a sea or they're standing on the other side of a sea. Right? And it's this, this imagery, and the imagery all through this chapter and the next chapter is all about Passover and all about the plagues of Passover. And we're, and all of the people who have defeated the beast by, by, by what, by what though? Did they fight a battle? Did they do anything? Did, did they, did they send, did they like, you know, get themselves stronger? No, all they did was listen to God and he led them to a place and he's the one who made them pure and he's the one that washed them and he's the one that, that brought them. And now they're standing on the sea and what makes them victorious? What God did for them. And they're standing on the sea and they have their harps, which is where you get the whole idea of everyone's playing harps in heaven, right? But this idea is that in heaven, there's this sea of glass and it's like, it reminds us of Passover. And it reminds us of the fact that it kept happening and it kept happening and it kept happening. And we cried out to the Lord and he heard our prayer and he delivered us. Right. So you go back to, well, verse three says, and they sang the song of Moses. So this is how I'm pretty sure they're talking about this. That this is what the illusion is. They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And they mix it up, right? So we're going to jump back for a second. Go back to the song of Moses. And there are actually two different songs of Moses. But this one we're going to go back to when it, what he said when they crossed the sea. Right? When they get to the other side of the sea and they're declaring the victory that God has done for them. This is what Moses sings. It says, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord and he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider have been hurled into the sea. Notice it's a similar pattern, right? The enemies have been destroyed. The enemies of God have been thrown down. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my Yeshua, which is what it says in Hebrew. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Notice he's glorifying his name. He's lifting up God. He's showing that God is the one who did this. Verse 4 Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea, and the choices of his officers he drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covers them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. So notice what happens here is Moses is not only praising God for what he's done. He's seeing it as a prophetic pattern of what God is going to do in the future. Right? He's not just saying you, you destroyed our enemies in the past. Now he's saying, and in your greatness and your excellence, you will overthrow all those who rise up against you. You will send forth your burning anger and it will consume them like chaff. And that reminds us of the Torah portion and that reminds us of the bowls. Right? That when the power of God is there, he comes in and he comes in like fire. 
right? At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. And if you remember, when the sea, when the wind blew, it actually says in Hebrew that it was a ruach, right? It was the, and we know from this verse that Moses is saying it was all from God's nostrils, that he breathed his ruach, his spirit, and his spirit was the thing that separated the water. Right? So at the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The, the flowing waters stood like a heap. The deeps were congealed like the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. That was chapter 13 of, of Revelation. Right? That's what the beast says. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw up my sword and my hand will destroy them. But then Moses says, you blew with your wind, the sea or your ruach. You blew with your spirit and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? And who is, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, working wonders? Right? And if you remember, two weeks ago we said that that's what they're doing in the book of Revelation. So think about it that when they finally get to this sea in the book of Revelation and they have defeated the beast... The song that pops into their head is, and the horse and the rider were thrown into the sea. Right? All those who stand up against you have been hurled down. So think about the things that have been going on in your life. Think about the terrible things, right? Think about all those things that have been, that have been like the pain and the suffering and the worry and the anxiety and all of those things stand up against the Lord and know that all of the things that stand up against the Lord will be hurled down. Just like they were in the Red Sea. Just like they will be at the glassy sea. You see that it will be the last time. I think there's something about saying, listen, whatever pain you've been through, there's a day coming where it will be the last pain. Right? Do you hear that? Good. That's. I think you should clap for that. There's something about going, you know what? This might be one of the times, but it, and it might happen again and again. And in my lifetime, it may be painful because life is painful because of the sin that has corrupted this world. But one day God will pour out his judgment and wrath and he, it will be the last time. Right? So you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them, and your loving kindness, you led your people whom you've redeemed and your strength, you've guided them to your holy habitation. Your people have heard, they tremble, anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia, the chiefs of Edom were dismayed, the leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall on them. But the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over. Right? Notice, he passes us over and then we pass over. He overcomes so we become overcomers. Right? He gives us victory and we are victorious. Right? Terror and dread fall on them, but until the Lord passes over... Until they pass over all those who have been purchased, right? We have been redeemed. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. He's not just talking about modern Israel. He's not talking about ancient Israel. He's talking about all of those things and, right? Because it's a prophetic pattern. That when the enemies of God stand up against them, he knocks them down. When the people of God reach out for him, he redeems them and he purchases them and he makes us his own. So here we have this sign in heaven where he sees these angels and he calls it glorious and marvelous. Great and marvelous. Why is he calling it great and marvelous? Because this is the last time. Right? I think we've been through enough. 
Do you know what I mean? And I know John is as a sigh of relief. He's saying, oh, this is great. This is the last set of plagues. This is the last judgment. So they sing the song of Moses, this is verse 3, and the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb. Right? So those things stand together. And we talk, look at this and you go, wait a minute, there is harmony in the Scriptures. Moses is not against the Messiah, and the Messiah is not against the law. The two of them stand in harmony. The two of them go together. They walk together as pillars. Just like in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 is the law, Psalm 2 is the Messiah. This idea, this prophetic pattern of the law and the Messiah walk together, and it says something about who God is. It reveals Him, how awesome and worthy of praise and how we should lift up His name, how terrible we are, but how He's going to redeem the whole situation. Right? So you end up singing both songs, right? You sing the song of Moses, the horse and the rider are thrown into the sea, but then you kind of go, yeah, but we're also Israel, so I know what the story is going to go to next. Right? God's going to speak and we're going to say no. We're going to build a golden calf, right? We're going to do these other, and God's going to go, man, don't you remember what I did? And that's going to happen for thousands of years. Then we come to a moment where all of that is finished. And finally, God's people remember what God did and they apply it to their current moment and they recognize that this is the last time it's ever going to happen. So they sing the song of Moses, which I think is probably that song we just read. And the bond servant, who's the bond servant of God, notice he's not the leader, he's the servant. He's a servant leader. And they sing the song of the lamb, which takes away the sin of the world. So they put that together and then they, there's this like, congealed song that comes out of them. They actually sing more lyrics. More lyrics come out. And I would say this is sort of true in prophetic sort of worship, that you sing the words and then more words come out, right? So we sing all those words and they put together, which we went through the last couple weeks, Psalm 111, Psalm 86, and Psalm 139, and maybe Isaiah 66 and a couple other things all get kind of blended into this song that goes, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Right? So what's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Right? But then that's not where it ends. You don't just say, oh, you're just, you're wise because you're afraid of God. No, but knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. He's revealing. He's giving us understanding. He's telling us that it's going to be okay. He, he's the beginning and the end. He knows what it feels like. He knows, he knows pain like we do. And he was willing to do it. So that we can be saved. And not only that, that we would glorify His name. That we would turn around and all of the verses would come together. And all the prophetic patterns would would swirl. And we would be in this incredible moment of the horse and the rider were thrown into the sea. And the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those two things together should like lift you off to your feet. It's actually one of my favorite scenes in the, in the Prince of Egypt movie, the cartoon, where they do a great job. And Moses gets to the, the burning bush and he says, I don't know, I don't know. And then God says, am I not the one? And the room changes and Moses sort of floats up into the air and a tear comes down his eye. And I feel like that's not in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure it happened. Because you can't be in the presence of God and have anything else other than freedom. 
is what Corinthians says. That when the presence, where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom, right? So notice, the Spirit of God comes to a group of people who have been through an immense amount of pain. 400 years of slavery, plagues, and getting kicked out of the country they know. They go into the wilderness, and their enemies are chasing them down. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, the, the, a new way appears. There's freedom. And they take that freedom, and what comes out of them is a song. And that song becomes the theme of the beginning and the end, right? That song becomes the song that's in the book of Exodus and all the way at the book of Revelation. And there's a day where we will all be together. Everybody will be on there at the same time. Everybody will be on the same page and all of us will be remembering the same thing. He's going to wipe away every tear, not some of the tears, every tear. He's going to get rid of all of the pain, get rid of all of the sin And then you'll see after this, get rid of all of the evil. And then we'll be in his presence forever. It'll be the last time that you have to feel that way. And look, there's a part of me that in my heart breaks because I think, I hope that happens soon. Because I don't want to go through more pain. And I don't want to watch you go through more pain. And I don't want to, I don't want to, that's not my desire. I will walk with you through it. I don't want to. Right? We'll walk with each other through it because we all know what it feels like. But there's also a moment that we know is coming based on what he's done, what he was willing to do, and what he's going to do. Right? We've seen him do it before. He was so willing to do it, he was willing to send his, live, give up his own life to do it so that we could live and step into the glorious inheritance that he provided for us. So no wonder they sing, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord. Righteous and true are your ways, King of nations. Who wouldn't fear you, O God? Because you alone are, are holy. And then they notice from Isaiah 66 and other places, all the nations will come before you. In fact, I'm going to jump back there. I want you to hear in Isaiah 66 how it goes. So this is Isaiah 66 starting in verse 13. It says, As one whom, as, as one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. Right? This is, this is the end of Isaiah. The last chapter of the book of Isaiah, right in the middle says, As one whose mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad. Your bones will flourish like new grass, and the hands of the Lord will be known to his servants. For he will be indignant toward his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind in, in, uh, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens follow one to the center, right? Who eats swine flesh, detestable things, mice, they all come to an end, declares the Lord. All of those detestable things will come to an end. This is what Isaiah the prophet is saying about the end. It says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come to see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and they will send survivors from all the nations, from Tarshish, from Put, from Lud. Now look at, right? Remember in Ezekiel when we were talking about all those nations that were coming against Israel? Here, Isaiah is saying, one day God is going to bring all of those nations to worship God. Right? That he's going to redeem even these ancient fights, all the ancient battles. I mean, all think about how old the fights are in your family. God's going to fight, like literally solve all the ancient battles. 
right? From Tubal, from Jabin, to the distant coastlands, they have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and I will declare my glory among the nations. They will see, uh, they will shall bring uh, all their brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord. So now, not by the way, they understand the holidays on some level, and they're, they're understanding it enough that they're bringing an offering, right? It says, they will bring them on horses and chariots and litters, on mules, on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will take some of it. For priests and Levites, right? So some of them become priests and Levites. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, says the Lord, so will your offspring and your name endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will bow down before me, says the Lord. Doesn't that sound just like what Revelation is saying? The, the, there's something about the continuity and the harmony of Scripture that gives me so much comfort in the middle of terrible things. That when I'm going through something terrible, I have to remember that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Notice, Revelation chapter 15 is the beginning of the end. And we're going to talk about those more next week. But even in this small little thing, God is bringing together images that if you love God, and you love His Word, and, and you want to grow as a person and you think about those things and you think about what God has done, it will transform the way you look at the world because even though he slay me, though shall I live. Right? Is what Job says. So even in the worst time, I will... Because I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that what he's done in the past and I know what he's willing to do and I know and I believe that he's going to do this in the future. That this will be the last time. So go back to Revelation chapter 15. It says, after these things I looked and look, this is the connection that ties it all together, right? Chapter 11, Ezekiel, Isaiah, all these prophetic passages. And I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. How do we know? Because God's tabernacle was opened up again. Now, what's interesting is that that phrase right there in Greek, the temple of the tabernacle, only happens three times in the Bible. Here, Revelation 11 and Exodus 40, when God opens the tabernacle the first time. Right? When the glory of the Lord comes into the tabernacle and what comes with it? Smoke and fire. And the, and the, the glory of the Lord is so much that the priests couldn't even do their job. Right? So again, we have a first and the last. Right? We have him there at the beginning and there at the end. And now he's saying, that was me when I first filled up the tabernacle. And it's me again when I'm going to fill it up for the last time. Every time I've moved my presence. The sad thing about Ezekiel, the story of Ezekiel, is that God's presence got up on a chariot and went to Babylon to be with his people. And he left the temple to be destroyed. And then the sadness that happens is Ezekiel says, well, maybe... I, God will, will restore it and God shows them a vision of all of the priests who are corrupted and all of the, the, the servants who are worshiping other gods. And he goes, what? And then God tells him, not only were you destroyed, but there's a whole nother captivity coming. A whole nother battle. And brings us all into captivity. And we get so into it, right? Not like Daniel at the beginning where he says, I'm not going to eat the food. Right? We, we were so bold that we just blended into the culture so much that when everybody finds out that Esther is Jewish, they're all surprised, right? They go, wait, what? You seem like one of us, 
right? We have got completely lost, but even in that, God saved us. Even in that, he brought us back. Even then, he gave us a desire to build his holy mountain, to bring to bring his temple. He's done, so the prophetic patterns keep going and going, and they spin and they go. And every time it happens, and every time we fail, and every time we mess up, and every time there is like death and murder and destruction and injustice, the prayer becomes, God, I hope this is the last time. And there, the answer is, there will be a last time. There will be no more tears. It will be, the wrath of God will be finished. So the temple is open and it connects us to all of those places. Right? All of those things. The, t- the temple of the tabernacle, which is the little center part, right? The holy, the holy place and the holy of holies is opened up again. And the seven angels with the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen. They're clean, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And then look at what happens. And the temple was filled with smoke for the glory of God and from his power. Right? Remember, the glory is the kavod, the heaviness, the weight of God. So the temple was filled and there was smoke and there was heaviness and there was power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Because this was the last time. This is really almost like the last sacrifice almost, right? The last time. The last time they do the sense, the censer. The last time they fill up the incense, right? We, there's a moment where we don't need it, right? And I know some of you are going to ask me about the millennium things that don't get distracted. Look at what it's saying. The hard things that are happening in your life, there is an end. The pain, there is an end. The injustice, there is an end. And we will all come together and glorify his name. We will lift him up for who he is because he is what he says he is and he's done what he said he would do and he has saved us and he's redeemed us. And the power of the glory of God comes in. Notice, there was smoke on Mount Sinai in Exodus 18. There was smoke in the tabernacle in Exodus 40 like we just talked about. There was smoke and fire in 1 Kings with Solomon when he opened up the temple. And it will be one last time that God will be amongst his people and we will be, like, he will be our God and it will just be that now. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more devil, no more confusion. It will be finished. Now to get there, we have to watch this final battle, right? We have to see all these things. But I'm telling you, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 sound pretty terrible until you get to the fourfold hallelujah, right? That this book of Revelation is all about revealing Yeshua, but if you were going to categorize it, I know we want to categorize it as apocalyptic literature, but really it's just a worship manual, right? Really, it's the same thing as Leviticus. You go, man, there's a whole bunch of rules in there. No, really, it's all about worship. It's all about what God loves. It's all about how God loves you. Right? That he delights in you. That he cares about you. That he looks at you as his child and it gives him joy. And he sees you as somebody who's who he wants in his presence. That he's willing to make an appointment with. Right? That he literally set aside divine appointments so that you could hang out with him. This is the God of the universe. And he's willing to do anything so that we could lift up his name. He's the first and the last. 
So do you find yourself wanting to glorify him? Do you find yourself wanting to understand him more? I hope that you sign up for more classes. I hope that you sign, not just because we want the classes to get bigger, because we want to be a congregation that, that desires growth. We want to pursue it. We want to go after it. We want to, we want growth because we're sick of death. Right? We want God to critique us because we want to get better. We want to become more perfect and mature. We want to become people who have understanding and we want to give that understanding to the world. And not only that, we want to bring the whole Bible to the whole world. We want to make disciples, the people who follow that, who understand that, who understand the values that we are understanding and, and, and trying to transmit. Right? We want to become the people of God so that people aren't confused by what it means to be a Christ follower. Right? And the way we do that is, is we take all of these things and we let it sink in deep and we understand that God loves us and we let him penetrate us with his power and we let us, we let him show us his power and his spirit comes over and shows us a new way. And we find ourselves on the glassy sea and we're lifting up his name and we're glorifying him and we're giving him the glory that he deserves. I mean, do you want to worship together? Worship him for what he's done and what he's going to do? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you want to, you can. Has anyone here been through any pain recently? Right? What if there's a last? Right? What if it's finished? Right, stand up. Let's. Lord, we ask you right now to just pour out your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask you to blow with your nostrils over the people here. Lord, if they are currently going through something and they need a breakthrough, Lord, we ask you to pour out your Spirit and give breakthrough. Lord, we ask you to give us a new way. Lord, the things that seem impossible, we ask that you show us with your eyes the battle that you're fighting. And Lord, we know that you are an awesome God and you are worthy of praise. Lord, I ask that you give each person here a sense of how much you love them, how much you care about them, how much you want them to be in your presence. And I ask you to just pour out your spirit in this place so that we can bring it to the world. Lord, we love you. And we're so thankful for what you've done. And we lift up your name in Yeshua's name. Amen. From the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, this is Solace Radio. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Lord, we're desiring today that your word would minister life to our spirit that you would feed us, Lord God, not just the food of this earth, but, Lord, the, the food of your word. We pray, Father, for your anointing on your word today that would minister to us and expand our own understanding, Lord, of the greatness of your salvation. We give this time to you, Lord, in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Um, over the past weeks and months, as um, as the realities of life in this present age seem to be getting more and more challenging and more intense, the burden that I've, I've really been feeling in my heart 
is for us as a congregation, and I, I think really I would say for all believers, is a burden for us to be experiencing more fully the reality of our new life in the Messiah. And as times become more intense, it is so important that we be living in the fullness of Yeshua's life and power so that our lives can be victorious in the midst of difficult times. God's intent for us, friends, is not that we run around just, you know, woe is us, look at, look at what's happening all around the world, look at what's happening with the economy and this, and focus on all these things as if we have no hope, as if we have no victory. And this is such a burden that we, we would be living in this place of victory. And one of the things that I mentioned last Shabbat is being central to who we are as a Messianic congregation is this issue of our experiencing vibrant spiritual life. That is to be at the very core of who we are as individuals and a congregation. People with a vibrant spiritual life. That's got to be foundational to everything that we are, both congregationally as well as individually. And so it's with that in mind that I want to begin today to share with you some teaching that I believe is really central for us to be understanding so that we can be living the kind of vibrant spiritual life that I'm talking about here. What we're going to be doing over the next several months at least, and it's going to take a while to get through this, what we're going to be doing, and it's not going to be every week because obviously there's holidays where we might do something different and there may be times, I'm sure there will be times when the Lord just uh, impresses it upon me or a guest speaker or something like that to be sharing on something else. But we're going to be going through the book of Romans to learn the key principles of this great, great writing of the New Covenant Scriptures. Now, I have to say, I've been hesitant to do this up until now, even though, to be honest with you, a number of folks have encouraged me to teach this material in our Shabbat messages. You, you may recall, some of you, that I, I, I taught some of this material several years ago for an evening class that we did here at Beth Judah, but the, the majority of you were not here for that class, and the truth is the material in this letter to the congregation at Rome is so central for understanding the nature of our new life in Yeshua and our victory over sin and so many other things. It's central to understanding some of the issues that we struggle with of law and grace. What is the place of the law in the Messianic congregation, in a believing congregation? It's central for understanding some very crucial issues related to Israel. And... Um, this is why I think several people have encouraged me to teach this as an ongoing series of Shabbat messages. About a year ago, you may recall, uh, Richard Cleary and I went to Cyprus, and I, I, I taught there the, the, um, the second-year students at the Gateways Beyond Ministry there. Uh, I taught the Romans chapters 1 through 8, and Rich sat through that, and that was at least the second time that he's heard the teaching. And he was really trying to encourage me afterwards, you know, this, this is something the whole congregation needs to hear as part of the main messages. But the, one of the reasons that I've been hesitant to do this is because it's going to take a while to get through this. 
Um, but as I said, we're going to take breaks from it as the Lord leads, but I, I really feel like it's a matter of obedience for me to be teaching this now at, at, at this point in time. And I'll just say, for those of you who were at those classes several years ago, these messages are going to be a little bit different. There's going to be less detail. We're not necessarily going to be going verse by verse through everything. Um, we're also, instead of stopping at chapter 8, we're going to go through the whole book of Romans all the way to the end. And um, there's going to be some new material as well that, that, that I'll be bringing in since I did it before. And I would just say as well, and just to be honest, every time I teach this material, I learn new things. And I've taught it at least a half a, half a dozen different times in different places and, in, and at different seasons. I learn new things every time I teach it. So I'm confident that even if you attended those previous classes, you're going you're gonna to get some new things out of these times that we have together. So... Again, it's not going to be a detailed verse-by-verse study. There will be sections that we look at more closely and spend some more time with than others. But today we're going to be do, doing more of a broad uh, 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 walking through the, uh, the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And that's going to lay the groundwork for what I consider to be the key chapters of this letter. Chapters 4 through 11. Chapters 1 through 3 lay the groundwork for these for these next chapters that follow that are really the, the heart of this letter to the Romans. So I want to pick up, I want to begin at Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, or Shaul, a bondservant of Yeshua HaMashiach, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel or, or the good news of God, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Yeshua, the Messiah, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The opening verses of this chapter, Shaul gives a brief statement of his own faith and ministry. And we find some important things mentioned here. Just in the, just in these early introductory verses. Verse two, he declares that the good news of Yeshua was promised before through the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures. In other words, what he is talking about, this, this message, this good news of Messiah having come, this is something, it's the fulfillment of everything that Judaism was to be looking to. Then verse 3, he refers to Yeshua as the seed of David. In other words, Yeshua is the fulfillment of that messianic hope that has been alive for centuries among the Jewish people. And then he says, according to the flesh. In the fleshly aspect uh, of, his, uh, of his origins, Yeshua is the seed of David. Now, why, why does Shaul point this out? Well, we can only speculate on it because he doesn't explain why, but... When you consider later on in the letter to the Romans, especially as he gets into chapter 11, where he's talking about Israel and, and, and some things related to Israel, actually it begins before that, but, but, but chapter 11 is a, is a key chapter there, it's evident that there had been some level of pride or arrogance that had developed on the part of some Gentile believers towards Israel and towards the Jewish people. He addresses this, of course, in chapters 9 through 11. There had been some arrogance and pride that had developed. 
And so it's very possible, and again, we can only speculate on this, but it's possible that Paul is simply highlighting to these Gentile believers in Rome that their own faith has to be understood as something that's very much connected to Judaism and very much connected to the Jewish people. It's connected to the prophetic hopes of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's it's the fulfillment of the hopes of the Jewish people themselves. So he refers to Yeshua as the seed of David according to the flesh. But then he he's also declared in verse 4 to be the Son of God with power based on having been raised from the dead. So that's the other side. He is the seed of David in the flesh, but he's also declared to be the Son of God in power through the resurrection from the dead. Paul writes some more introductory comments, and then we get to verse 13. And I want to read a few verses here. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to proclaim the good news to you who are in Rome also. Verse 13 He compares the congregation in Rome to the other Gentiles that he's ministered to. So that suggests to us a little bit, uh, a a little something about this congregation that he's writing to. It was likely made up of mostly believers who were not Jewish by birth. Now, Rome being such a large city, it's not unlikely that there there would have been some Jewish believers there. But in all probability, they were the really a, a, a minority, and so he, he's pointing this out here, just that that comparing them, as I said, to to other congregations that were that were not of Jewish birth. Then, verse fourteen, we find a statement that really shows the heart of Paul as he understands the reality of God having saved his life and uh, having called him into ministry. His His basic interpretation of that is, I am a debtor. I owe the world what's been given to me. That's an incredibly powerful statement, what he says here. The meaning of debtor from the Greek is one who has assumed an obligation. He's saying, I have assumed an obligation. I have taken upon myself an obligation. See, Paul realized that his time on this earth was for one purpose and one purpose alone, to make known the life and power of Yeshua's salvation to all peoples. And, and, and this, is a, this is a concept, this, this concept of understanding. We are here on this earth with an obligation to all people. We're not here just to enjoy life as much as we can. I mean, I believe God wants us to enjoy life. I believe God wants us to, 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 to have the joy of, 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 of things, of good things that, that he gives us and blessings that he pours out into our lives. But that's not the primary purpose that we're here. We are, we are here with something of an obligation, just as Shaul expresses here. That's not just the, the life calling of an apostle or a shaliach, if we want to use the Hebrew. That's the life calling of every believer in Messiah. We have an obligation, an obligation to express Yeshua to this world around us. And uh, that's something we need to take to heart. Now, verses 16 and 17, we find in just two verses here 
I, I think, a summarizing of the total theme of this letter as he then develops these themes in the chapters that follow. But I, let, let's read verse 16. It's a verse that we're well familiar with here. And I mentioned it, of course, even last Shabbat as part of our, our purpose statement. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel or the good news of Messiah, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek or also for the Gentile. Think about it now. Shaul is writing to a congregation in the city that was the center of world power in that day. Clearly power was at the heart of the, of the entire mindset of the Roman Empire. But Shaul is saying here that there is a power of God that leads to salvation. This power of God conquers you, but it's not for the purpose of defeating you. The power of God is for the purpose of saving you. It's a power that, that's capable of rescuing and delivering human beings from, uh, 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 from sin and darkness and death and bringing us into freedom rather than taking away our freedom. That's the nature of this power of the good news. Rome, of course, had gone through the world at that time, forcing her rule and dominance over every nation that was conquered. But Paul was saying that greater than the power of an army to conquer nations is the power of the good news of Messiah to win over the human heart so that God can establish his dominion and his rule in the heart of a human being. But contrary to the Roman rule, which conquered and brought men into, into submission and bondage, God's rule rescues us and brings us into freedom. Amen. It's an incredible contrast that he's bringing, about, bringing, bringing out here just by the wording that he uses. So God conquers the human heart, not forcibly, but rather with a proclamation of good news and deliverance. God conquers the human heart with a message of love and grace and mercy, a message that gives us freedom. Now, the word power is from a Greek word. You've probably all heard it and different people teach on this. The word dunamis. This word suggests a power that has a dynamic work in its impact on a human being. The good news is the dunamis of God. It's the power of God. It's dynamic in impacting a person's heart. In other words, this, this message of Yeshua, it's, it's much more than just an idea. It's much more than just a philosophy. It's more than just a theory. It's much more than just a set of laws or standards that man would somehow try to obey. But there is a dynamic power in the good news itself to change a human being from the inside and to work its way out. To impact a person's life in a tangible and life-changing way. And Paul's idea here is that once we receive this, we should never be the same after that. Because this good news is dynamic in its capacity to impact and transform the life of a human being. So... This theme of a transformed life becomes the main message that we, we will see throughout this book, throughout this letter to the Romans. And so this, this, this concept of the dynamic power 
of the good news. It's something that we will develop much more in depth as we get into chapters 4 through 8 in, uh, in, in, in future weeks. Now, for whom will this good news be dynamic and life-changing? For all who believe, all who trust the Lord with their lives. Now, again, from the wording here, we see a very important contrast between the impact of Roman power. And when I say, you know, I'm not trying to single out the Romans. Any conquering group at any time in history would have did the same things as the Romans did, essentially. But we see this contrast between the impact of Roman power and the impact of the power of God. Rome conquered by force. And Rome's rule over the nation, over nations, was based on the fear of Rome's power. God conquers our hearts with his love and his mercy. God conquers our hearts with his grace. You know, we read earlier from the passage that, 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 uh, that Rich did some commentary on them from 2 Corinthians 7. Having these promises, beloved, it says. Let us cleanse ourselves from, from, uh, from sin. Having these promises of God, these, these promises of the grace of God. God conquers our hearts with His grace. And as, as man recognizes that love and that grace, we respond by trusting Him with our lives. That's the idea here. And the result is the dynamic impact of the gospel to bring transformation to our lives. Just seeing this contrast, should give us such a depth of appreciation for God's goodness and in how he wins our hearts with love, how he draws us into his salvation. So it, it's for all who believe, and the idea with believing is trust. It's for all who trust our lives into the hand of the one who rescues us rather than defeating us. Well, then, then Shaul writes, it's for the Jew first and also... For the Greek, or also for the Gentile. Why does he make this distinction of Jew and Gentile? Why didn't he just say it's for everyone who believes? Well, he does say that, but he, he does also make this distinction. And I believe that he's introducing something here that he will later explain more fully in chapters 9 through 11. But let's just consider a couple of things of important first right now. First of all, for those who believe in what's called dual covenant theology, and I've talked about this before, there are those in the body of believers who believe that Israel has a separate covenant, the Jewish people have a different covenant than the Gentile world. And so the, the Gentiles of this world need to come to God through Jesus. The Jews have their own covenant through Moses. That's called dual covenant theology. The bottom line of that, and there are prominent Christians who teach this and who are proponents of this theology. And of course, the bottom line, the end result, if you believe in dual covenant theology is, why share your faith with the Jewish people? Hey, you don't have to deal with that rejection. You don't have to deal with people getting upset with you. You don't have to worry about it. They've got their own covenant. Not true. Not true. For Jew and Gentile, the good news is the power of God unto salvation. That's what it says here. That's what it says. Now, I, you know, 
Maybe Paul had in mind this dual covenant theology. Who knows? It, it may have existed then. It's not referred to in the scriptures, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be surprising if people did believe it then. But certainly it's to be understood as Yeshua, the gospel, the good news of Messiah, is the only way into salvation for the Jew and also for the Gentile. Clearly, Paul's understanding of salvation was based on this revelation of Yeshua as Messiah and Lord. And so, in his view, it would be absolutely clear that everyone needs to embrace Yeshua in order to come into this salvation for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Now, how are we to understand this issue of for the Jew first? In what sense is the good news for the Jew first? Well, I I think he's talking about the historical reality of the Jewish people having received the good news of Yeshua before it was brought to the nations. That is an historic fact. But also, I think Paul is hinting at a spiritual principle that he wants the Gentile church to understand and come to terms with. It's a spiritual principle that reflects the order of God. And we see this principle actually walked out in Paul's own life throughout the book of Acts, because we see when he would travel from city to city, do you remember it says everywhere he goes, everywhere he went, he would always go to the synagogue first, and then he would he would reach out he would he would reach out to the Jewish community in that area, and then he would reach out after that beyond the synagogue to the Gentiles of those regions. Now, please hear me on this, and it's very important to understand what 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 I am and what I'm not saying, and I'm not even going into detail on this. It's not an issue of the Jews being more deserving or more important or anything on that level that implies better. It just speaks of historical pattern, and it's a reflection of God's order and how God has set things up to be done. That's what it is, okay? People should not hear this as, well, what makes the Jewish people better? Nothing. Yeshua makes us all better. That's what it comes down to. So it's not, don't hear it that way as better or first-class citizen, second-class citizen. No, he's just giving an order. This is an order that God has set into his word. It's a spiritual principle. And it's also, as, as I said before, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a reflection of the historical reality. So ver- that, that's verse 16, some thoughts there. But let's keep going on verse 17 now. Let me read the two verses together. For I am not ashamed of the good news of Messiah, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For in it, meaning in the proclamation of that message, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. There's an awful lot in this verse here. Here we, we, we find what might be considered, I think anyway, this, the summary statement for the entire letter. First of all, there's a key statement. The righteousness of God is revealed through this message, obviously, of the good news of Yeshua. Righteousness here refers to God's own righteousness being revealed to man. It's a righteousness that impacts man by removing man's guilt so that we can stand without shame and without guilt in the presence of a holy God. That righteousness, he says, is revealed. Now, 
It's interesting because the Greek word that he uses here means to uncover something that had previously been hidden. So that tells us something very important. This righteousness that comes through trusting the good news of Messiah is a righteousness that was previously hidden. In other words, it's a level of righteousness that had not been previously experienced. It's a level of righteousness never before available to man until that new covenant in Yeshua came into being. So then think about the implications of that. Prior to the new covenant in Yeshua, an Israelite could have been obedient to all the detail of the sacrificial system. You know, we can read through the book of Leviticus and Numbers and, and, and read all of the detail of the, 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 the offerings and the sacrifices and the priesthood and all the stuff that was going on every day, hours and hours a, a, a day, every single day. And an Israelite could have been obedient to all the detail of the sacrificial system, all of the offerings, all the sacrifices, and yet he could never have come into this right standing with God that was now being revealed through the new covenant in Yeshua. That's what's implied in this word that, that, that Shaul uses here. All of the, all, all of that, it could not bring him into a place of true righteousness with God. So, this righteousness revealed, that is, uncovered, so as to be fully seen and understood, this righteousness revealed through the new covenant is to have an impact on man that man never experienced before that time. An impact completely new and different from the experiences of even the most godly people who are described in the Hebrew Scriptures prior to the times of Yeshua. They could not come in to the level of righteousness that we are able to experience through the new covenant. I mean, just think about that. Abraham, Moses, Daniel, Job, some of the godliest men that we could find. And they could not personally experience the same level of righteousness that we are privileged to come into through the new covenant. So... That's, that's something important. The nature of the righteousness that we can experience as believers in Yeshua is actually different from the righteousness experienced prior to the new covenant. There is an actual impartation of righteousness into our lives. Now, this righteousness, he says, is from faith to faith. What does that mean? Well, the word faith expresses the idea of trusting. Uh, trustful surrender of the soul is the meaning there. Keep that phrase in mind. When you read through the book of Romans, that, that is always the meaning of this word faith as it's used especially in the book of Romans. A trustful surrender of the soul. Um, see, often we find ourselves, or we might find ourselves, kind of striving to work ourselves up into a place of faith. Have you ever, have you ever felt that way or, or have you ever, have you ever interacted with people who are kind of, they're just trying so hard to be in faith. We don't have to try so hard. Actually, faith doesn't involve striving at all. It involves a trustful surrender of our lives to God. A trustful surrender in which we stop looking actually at our own efforts. We stop looking at what we can do and we put our trust in God as the one who does the work in us. Friends, a key in the whole concept of faith 
is that we are trusting things into the hands of another. We're trusting our lives into the hands of someone outside of ourselves. And that really does, you know, that, that really does take faith. So in context here, there is a giving up on our own striving to somehow become righteous and instead a trusting, a surrender of the soul in rest to God who has provided fully for our righteousness. This righteousness begins with our faith or trusting and then we continue in our relationship with God according to the same principle of trustful surrender. We put no confidence in what we can do to be righteous. We put our, we continue to have our confidence in God. Our confidence and trust is totally in what God has done on our behalf and what He is continuing to do on our behalf day by day by day. So that's from faith to faith. Well then he, he, he quotes from the, the prophet Habakkuk, uh, chapter 2 verse 4. He says, the just shall live by faith. It's very important that he quotes, he quotes a, a Hebrew prophet here because he has just implied that this righteousness of God was something previously hidden. But now, I think, anyway, by quoting from the Hebrew prophets, he's showing that the salvation he's speaking about is still a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In other words, this, this salvation is totally Jewish. In other words, this new level of righteousness that's now available to man was not to be understood as some new religion. It's actually the very thing that the Hebrew Scriptures pointed to all along. It's a, it's a fulfillment of the prophetic passages from the Bible. Now, for the rest of the chapter, Paul describes the declining condition of man from creation onward. And I think, among other things, he's giving insight here into why it's such a miraculous thing for God to actually change the nature of a, of, a, of a human being. Why it is that salvation is such an awesome expression of the dynamic power of God. Why? Because the whole history of man shows man's ongoing rejection of the knowledge of God. Man's increasing sin in spite of God revealing himself. Verse 18, Paul speaks of God's wrath being revealed against ungodliness. In other words, wrath is what we deserved from God. But then verses 19 and 20, he highlights that there clearly has been a revelation of the knowledge of God to all mankind, even prior to the law of Moses being given. There was a revelation of the nature of God to all of mankind. Now note the wording that God's attributes are clearly seen. That means man prior to Moses understood the ways, had some understanding of the ways of God. It was communicated to him. All right, then verses 21 through 23, he focuses on the tendency in man through the ages to reject this clearly revealed knowledge of God. And then verses 24 through 32 describe the absolute moral decay of mankind as man has chosen continually over and over and over again to reject God's revelation. It's a very powerful description as it speaks of Really, the end result of man living apart from the dynamic impact of God's righteousness. In other words, until this righteousness by faith in Messiah would be available to man, 
Man could only go in the direction of death and destruction and perversion and moral decline and all of the things that are mentioned in these verses. Now, the reason this section is so important to the whole letter is this. Man as he is, apart from salvation, man is in heart an enemy of God drifting further and further from God. Now, there are many proponents in our day of the philosophy of humanism that exalts the potential within man for becoming good, for being good. And we see this over and over again. Folks, we can't believe it. We can't buy into that nonsense if we believe the word of God. Be careful what you listen to. There are people who sound so reasonable as they talk about the greatness within man to become good. And it's just a bunch of baloney. Not very kosher baloney either. It's just not true. It's just not true. And, and, and I think that this is one of the reasons that Shaul describes in, in such, I mean, it's just in a very powerful way, he's describing this here, the utter decline and decay of, of, of mankind. Man can intellectually know of the existence of God and even understand that God is good. But you know what? Knowing it is not enough, he will end up going the way of sin unless there is a change in his nature. And this description here at the end of chapter 1, and actually into chapter 2 as well, is what tells us there must be a change in the nature of mankind to come into a right relationship with God. And friends, I want to tell you, I, I mean, in spite of the many prominent voices of our culture today, all religions are not okay. We have got to understand, we have got to be wise in what we're listening to. All religions do not lead us to God in their own way. And there's a simple reason for that. It's only the biblical faith centered on Yeshua that deals with this issue of sin that dominates the hearts and lives of human beings. Buddhism doesn't deal with sin. Confucianism doesn't deal with sin. All of the New Age nonsense doesn't deal with sin. They all come from a humanistic perspective as they're exalting the ability, the wonderful ability in man to achieve this greatness. Well, how come we haven't done it then in all these, you know, we would say 6,000 or so years. They would say, what, how many hundreds of millions of years? Man still isn't very good. All religions do not lead us to God. Because it's only when we deal with this issue of sin that dominates the hearts and lives of human beings, only then can we come into right relationship with God. And of course, we find the beginnings of God dealing with the issue of sin in Judaism, in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, but then it's fulfilled in Yeshua, which would obviously entail Messianic Judaism as well as a biblically-based Christianity. So be careful who you hear. There are many voices of our society today, and I'm not going to mention names, but you know who I'm talking about. And I mean, people exalt them. They're so wise. They're so... And, and, and you know what? The voices of our culture would try to convince us that we need to be more reasonable. We need to be embracing of other views and other positions. Folks, embrace the people, but reject the views because they are wrong. 
God's word is clear on these issues. His word is clear on the condition of man apart from the dynamic work of Yeshua's righteousness upon our hearts. And so Paul is actually setting us up here. He's setting us up for what is to be the central theme for the rest of the letter. And that is the only hope for man in light of man's history in relation to God is a salvation that does not just cover up his sin or, or, or even just forgive our sins. The Mosaic system provided a salvation that covered up sin, but it didn't produce change. It laid out a system of laws for man to try to control his behavior. Well, the only real hope for man would be a salvation that in a real way, in a dynamic way, impacts and changes the heart of a human being. The nature of man must be changed if this salvation is to give man any kind of real hope for righteousness. There must be a new heart in mankind. And really we need to understand this so that we can appreciate what has happened in our lives when we've received his righteousness. The most awesome miracle that we could ever experience. You know, people say, I want to see a miracle. Just look at yourself. The most awesome miracle that we could ever experience has happened to us if we have received the righteousness of God through trusting. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. We said, yes, Lord, I recognize my need. I receive your gift. That's a miracle because our our nature changes in the process. It's talked about in Ezekiel 36 and other parts of the of the Hebrew scriptures. It's talked about in the New Covenant scriptures. Beloved, he has changed our nature so that we are no longer his enemies. Think about that for a moment because when this becomes revelation to us, I'll tell you, it, it removes all the limitations as to what we can become in the Messiah because God has actually changed our nature. Sometimes people might think or say, well, well, I just can't help being the way I am. I don't know if I can change. Well, maybe you can't help being the way you are, but you can change. And to think that way just means that we don't really understand what God has done in saving us. When he says, I just can't help being the way I am. Now, Shaul continues on in the next chapter, and we're going to go real quickly through two and three. <laughs> we're not going to be here till three o'clock, don't worry. But he goes on in the next chapter to make it clear that all mankind has the same need. And so in these two chapters, he addresses essentially three types of people. He's addressing, first of all, those who are totally given over to sin and depravity. Those are the ones described at the end of, really, the second half of chapter one. These are the ones described, given over to blatant rebellion. They are, they, they consider themselves to be enemies of God and don't want any part of God. They don't want anything to do with God. They're given over to blatant idolatry, immorality, perversion, all kinds of things. Paul mentions then, a second group of people, those who maybe not sunk to such extremes of blatant sin. And so they may think themselves to be okay in relation to God because they try to be good, they try to be moral, but he's addressing them as well. And then there's a third type of person. Paul addresses the Jewish people, those who have, and the reason he, sets, he separates the Jewish people here is because the Jewish people had God's Torah as a guide for, for their lives. And so for all three types of people, from the most perverse sinner to the most outwardly observant Jew, he says, no one is free from sin's power. You will all be judged with the same judgment. Now, why is that? 
The answer is seen in a simple statement that he makes in chapter 2, verse 2. Let's just read that. Romans 2, verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. The judgment of God is according to truth. In other words, God's judgment is not based on how bad someone's sin is, which if that were the case, you'd have this kind of scenario where, you know, one person lies and another person may commit murder. And so the one who murders is judged in, in, in their thinking, while the one who lies thinks that he may not be judged because, after all, it was just a, law, a, a little small sin. No. God's judgment is not according to the degree of sin that a person commits. His judgment is according to truth. In other words, God's perfect righteousness is the only standard that's acceptable. We say, oh my goodness, where does that leave us? It leaves us like everybody else. We all need his righteousness because we all fall short. His judgment will be on all who fall short of that righteousness on, on any level. Now this is so important because... It leaves everyone in the same dilemma. Every human being is deserving of God's righteous judgment, and that's why every human being needs the impact of God's perfect righteousness in our lives in order to be saved from that judgment. This is especially relevant, again, when you apply it to the false teaching of dual covenant theology. How can it be that Yeshua is for the Gentiles, but for the Jewish people, we could be saved based on the Mosaic Covenant? That's impossible based on what, what Cha'ul is writing here. The need of every human being, from the idolater to the most religious who's trying to keep every rule perfectly, the need of every human being is to be impacted in our hearts by the salvation of God as we receive that dynamic righteousness of Yeshua from Yeshua himself. For those thinking that the Jewish people having Torah would be exempt from the judgment of God, well, Paul makes it pretty clear that having Torah is not the issue at all. Let's look ahead at verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. The Torah is the very thing that judges our actions. So this, this theme dominates all of chapter 2, which we're not going to read here, but I encourage you, go home, and, and, and each of these weeks that we do these, these, these messages, go home and on your own, I encourage you to spend some time looking at the chapters, reading through them, and meditating on them. The Lord, I, I guarantee the Lord will show you some things that will, that will uh, encourage you and build you up. But Paul, of course, concludes the chapter with some discussion on the what was the tendency of Jewish people and what still would be, may be the tendency of Jewish people at times to point to the issue of circumcision. Circumcision was, of course, an outward sign of God's covenant with the Jewish people. And so their thinking would have been, how can the same principles of judgment apply? And Paul's answer is, what good is circumcision if you're still violating the Torah? You know, don't, don't point to your circumcision while you go and you violate the law of God. So he's saying that is the condition of every person, every human being, Jew or Gentile. We have all violated God's righteousness. He then closes the chapter by focusing on the issue of circumcision of the heart as the key issue of importance. Now, 
This leads Paul to anticipate a possible question from his readers. And he does this a number of times in the letter to the Romans. The question here is, is there then any advantage to being a Jew? And his answer in chapter 3, verse 2 is, yes, to them were committed the oracles of God. There is a specific call that God has for the Jewish people. There is a purpose of God related to Israel. And, and, and Paul clearly speaks of that as being in the present tense. The wording he uses is clearly present tense, meaning it's not a past purpose. It's still going on. Now, chapter 3, verse 9 is an important transitional verse that really turns Paul's discussion to the issue or begins to turn Paul's discussion to the issue of the power of this salvation that's been made available to man. Let's read chapter 3, verse 9. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, that they are all under sin. All right, he's just made a point that there is a call and a purpose of God related to the Jewish people, but then he makes it clear that the Jews are no better off than the Gentiles in this whole thing with regard to being trapped in sin and separated from the righteousness of God. What he then does in the verses that follow, he then brings in a whole series, verses 10 through 18, a whole series of quotations from the Psalms and from Isaiah. Verses that make it clear that all mankind is really in the same boat in relation to sin. Now, the, and, and the message of these verses is that not only has sin impacted all mankind, but the judgment of God that's a result of sin, that also impacts all of humanity. Now, some Jewish people in Paul's days day might have objected by trying to say, that those quotes from the Psalms and from Isaiah actually speak of the Gentiles. They speak of the nations. But see, Paul answers that with a simple statement. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. In other words... It cannot just be speaking about the nations. It's speaking directly to those who had received the Torah. That's, that's his point here. The one who boasts of being in right standing with God simply because he is a Jew, because of having the Torah, can no longer boast in that way, but based on what's written. Now, verse 20, and this will be the last verse that we, that we, we read today. Paul makes a statement that begins a discussion that will now take up basically the next five or so chapters. Let's read Romans 3, verse 20. He says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Very, very important statement here. He's stating why the deeds of the law cannot be the basis for right standing with God. He says it's the Torah itself that brings the knowledge of sin. Now, I want to introduce at this point a principle that will be very important as we continue on in later chapters. And I believe it's key for understanding some of the things said in later chapters. Sha'ul is introducing here a concept that I like to refer to as the ministry of the law, the ministry of the law. 
Something for us to think about. The New Covenant Scriptures tell us clearly that the law is something that is good. And yet, there are also statements in the New Covenant Scriptures that can be confusing for us as believers, especially in a Messianic congregation. Statements such as, you are no longer under the law, but under grace. You ever been, ever been talking to someone, they, you know, tell them you're part of a messianic congregation. Oh, well, don't you understand? You're not under the law anymore. What are you doing that stuff? That's how it's understood. Well, it's not how it's meant. Amen. Statements like Romans chapter seven. This is actually even a little stronger where, where Paul wrote, writes, you are dead to the law. And in another place, he says, we've been delivered from the law. Folks, we've got to be able to understand how it is that on one hand, we do see these statements. They're there in the New Testament. But at the same time, we, we have clear statements as well about the law being good and eternal and that it's not going to be done away with until every word of it's been fulfilled. How do we reconcile these seemingly contradictory ideas? And we better be able to reconcile them because... It affects the whole concept of Messianic Judaism as a valid new covenant expression. So how do we reconcile these concepts? Tune in next week. <laughs> Talk about setting you up. I couldn't resist that. But <laughs> Now to tell you the truth, because you, you'll get mad at me next week, I'm not going to really answer the question next week. We're going to start to answer the question. We don't. Re- we won't really answer these questions until we get into chapters Six and seven, and that's going to be a ways off, probably. But uh, 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 we we will get into these issues, and I guarantee you, it will answer questions you've had about how these verses can be in the New Covenant Scriptures and how we can justify who we are as a Messianic congregation. But let me just share a, a couple of final thoughts in closing, just to kind of sum up the main thing that I want you to get from what we've seen today. All that we've considered this morning has been brought out by Paul to set up the discussion that he begins in chapter 3, verse 21, which we're going to pick up there next week. But he is setting us up, he is setting up the reader to see that as desperate a condition as man apart from God is truly in, as hopeless as man's unredeemed condition appears, the salvation he is about to describe in depth and in detail in the chapters to come totally meets the need of man and completely reverses the course of man's relationship with God. Paul's writing here in these next several chapters is some of the most brilliant writing, I think, in the history of mankind. It's incredible, incredible stuff that we're going to be getting into. But he's setting us up to hear of a salvation that is so great and so awesome in what it accomplishes in man that those who trust in God to accomplish this work no longer have to live defeated lives. We don't have to be defeated anymore. We no longer have to live apart from the dynamic impact of his righteousness upon our lives. What he's done for us, friends, is not just cosmetic. You know, it's not just, well, God puts a little makeup on us so we'll look better. No. It's something, it's, it's something, what God has done for us and in, and, and, and in us, it's real, it's powerful, it changes us from the inside out. It's dynamic in its impact. And because of this work, no believer ever has to accept the lie that things will always be the same and that there is no hope for change. We're going to continue with this next week. So let's close in prayer. Just thank God for his goodness. Father, we just ask that, um,
you would take these things that we've considered today and uh, just bring them deeply into our hearts to begin to set the stage for what you're wanting to teach us in the weeks to come. And Father, I, I just want to want to pray for for my brothers and sisters here that Lord, that as as the the people here are reading. This, these scriptures in the weeks ahead, Lord, that you would be giving them insights and giving them revelation by your Spirit to see this this reality of your salvation even more and more and more clearly on their own. Father, I just thank you that you have brought us into so great a salvation. Just continue to expand our understanding. And as we sang earlier, Lord, open the eyes of our hearts that we would see more clearly what it is that you've done in us and for us, and uh, that we would have confidence in what you're going to be doing through us as a result of that salvation. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for all of this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Shelley, would you come up? Let's stand together, and we want to give thanks to the Lord for his provision, as well as to uh, speak the blessing of the Lord over you. And I want to, uh, we just want to have an opportunity for people who want uh, prayer, laying on of hands and prayer. Uh, if folks who are part of the ministry team would be available for that, we'd like to just pray for people who would like prayer after the service. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Please take the hand of someone near you as we recite the ironic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Sah Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.